Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. My guest this week is a husband, father, business leader, former U.S. Navy submarine officer, and the author of All in the Same Boat, and I Have the Watch, John Rennie. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. Chapter 8. Celebrate the Tough Times The North Atlantic is a cruel and unforgiving body of water. Thomas Barnhart, Chief of the Boat, USS City of Corpus Christi. Winter in the North Atlantic the winter seas in the North Atlantic were notoriously rough, but today they were absolutely brutal. The men on board the 306-foot Edsel-class destroyer escort USS Frost were being tossed about like rag dolls. They were shaken, but they remained on high alert. They stayed vigilant because their mission was far too important. The fate of millions of people in New York and Boston were in their hands. In a last-ditch effort to turn the tide of the war, U.S. intelligence had discovered that Germany was plotting to send dozens of submarines armed with V-1 flying bombs to terrorize East Coast cities. The Frost was one of more than 20 destroyer escorts assigned to Operation Teardrop. Their job was to find and destroy these missile-armed U-boats before they could carry out their deadly attacks. Just before midnight on April 15, 1945, they made radar contact in the middle of a terrible storm. A 23-year-old sailor gripped an electrical panel tightly as the ship pitched back and forth. This was his battle stations on the USS Frost. His job was to ensure the ship's electrical systems remained fully functional while the ship made its attack. He had heard on the 1MC that their sister ship, USS Stanton, had spotted a U-boat on the surface. The enemy boat was on the surface because it couldn't snorkel in the rough seas, which were later described as mountainous. The Stanton initiated an anti-submarine hedgehog mortar attack against the surface boat, but somehow the submarine managed to submerge and escape. The Frost was now joining the fight in a desperate search for the evading submarine. The young sailor knew the hunters had just become the hunted. One well-placed torpedo would send the Frost and all of her 209 sailors to the bottom of the unforgiving Atlantic. That sailor was my grandfather, and that night his ship, the USS Frost, along with the USS Stanton, managed to overcome incredible odds. They found and sank not just not one, but two German submarines in the middle of a heavy storm. It was a tense battle that lasted the entire night, but in the end, the two destroyer escorts were able to outmaneuver and outgun the deadly U-boats. Both submarines suffered enormous explosions after being attacked, which reinforced the intel that they were carrying missiles destined for the East Coast. I had heard the story from my grandfather years ago, but I had never imagined that 46 years later, at 23 years old, I would be on a submarine operating in the same area of the North Atlantic in a massive winter storm in a completely different war. 
As I gripped an electrical panel tightly to steady myself against the rolling seas, I thought about my grandfather and the dangerous situations he faced in the Navy during World War II. I was beginning to understand why he was the most calm and composed man I had ever known. It was January of 1991, and I was on my first patrol on the USS Tennessee. Our operating area for this deployment was the North Atlantic. Our job was strategic deterrence, and our enemy was the USSR. Our job was to remain undetected and be ready to launch our missiles if directed. Although significant changes were happening in Moscow, the Cold War was still in full strength and the Soviet fleet was desperate to locate us. To say that winter storms in the North Atlantic are relentless is an understatement. To put it in perspective, the perfect storm, made famous by the book by Sebastian Younger and a movie by George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg, would occur in the North Atlantic nine months after I made this patrol. That storm in October of 1991 contained 75 mile per hour winds and 100 foot waves. It killed 13 people, including the crew of the fishing vessel Andrea Gale. As the newest officer on the Tennessee, I was still trying to get my bearings and learn the routines. The bad weather and the effect on the boat took me by surprise. I had no idea that a 560-foot submerged submarine would take this level of pounding 200 feet below the angry seas. We were taking rolls in excess of 30 degrees, and the Tennessee's round hull offered no resistance to the swells. The fish tank in the wardroom had to be lowered to just a few gallons to keep it from sloshing out during the steepest rolls. Even the fish were miserable. As I observed the crew, I could tell this wasn't normal. Seasickness was widespread, and even some of the most seasoned sailors were looking green around the gills. The cooks on the mess deck struggled to prepare meals in the heaving seas. They had to be careful not to allow pots and pans to crash to the deck, which would give away our position. I learned the importance of the phrase rig for sea. That meant everything had to be either tied or locked down to make sure they wouldn't come loose and fall during the heavy rolls. My job this evening was to take the Tennessee to periscope depth and snorkel as the junior officer of the deck. This was part of my qualification process. Snorkeling was used to run the diesel generator at periscope depth. Many people are surprised to learn that submarines have a diesel generator, but it's an important piece of equipment. The diesel could be used to recharge the ship's battery if there was a problem with the reactor, or it could be configured to ventilate a smoke-filled compartment in an emergency. Tonight was supposed to be a routine snorkel operation. It would be the first time I'd ever taken the Tennessee to periscope depth, and it turned out to be a lot more than I ever expected. While I've traveled all over the world, from jungles to deserts and forests to glaciers, I was born and I currently live in Phoenix, Arizona, which makes me a proud desert rat. It's the end of April here, and the weather is sunny with highs of around 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius. By mid-July, that'll get up to 118 degrees or 47 Celsius, if we're lucky. Sometimes it's higher. Believe it or not, when I lived in California and overseas, my skin actually craved the heat. I really just need the photons to just get, just get right in there. And no, I'm not kidding. So as you might imagine would be true of anybody who grew up in a sun-scorched, landlocked, cactus-strewn hellscape, my favorite activity as a boy was sailing. No, really. My aunt and uncle owned a sailboat in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, and I learned to sail with them. I fell in love with it after my first time on the water. One of my favorite movies growing up was Wind, the 1992 film about the America's Cup sailing race, which I recommend especially for the cinematography. Something about the thrill of the high seas called to me. 
and not just because I grew up in the desert. It wasn't the novelty, in other words. I loved the ocean for what it was, even though I barely knew it. I loved it so much that in 2018, sight unseen, I volunteered on board a sailboat in the South Pacific, bound from Fiji to the island nation of Vanuatu, and then on to New Caledonia. Beforehand, I'd only heard of one of those countries as well. Then I spent more than two months sailing the South Pacific with three strangers, and I loved it. It was a formative experience for me, with memories I'll never forget, and moments like a three-day storm at sea that quite literally made me the man I am today. So while I grew up in the desert, some part of my heart will always belong to the sea. That's why I've always been fascinated by sea stories like The Odyssey, Moby Dick, and Treasure Island, as well as the films The Hunt for Red October, a personal favorite, and Crimson Tide. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is John Rennie, and he's a former U.S. Navy nuclear submarine officer, as well as a business leader, podcast host, and author. You can imagine my curiosity when we bumped into each other on Twitter, and I saw his book All in the Same Boat, about his time aboard the USS Tennessee, and what it taught him about life and business. I don't usually read business books, but I thought I'd give this one a try. It immediately had me engrossed, and I thought the men and women in my audience might enjoy some of his stories and lessons as well. I think I was right about that, because as you'll soon see, I got some great benefits out of having him on the podcast. This was one of the most fun conversations I've had, and I think you'll hear it. In our conversation, John and I discussed his background and some formative moments aboard the Tennessee, how he raised his boys to become successful men, the three acts of his life, from naval officer to business leader to author, the process of writing his trilogy of books about submarine and business life, what it was like serving during the Cold War, and of course the accuracies and inaccuracies of the hit submarine films The Hunt for Red October and Crimson Tide. In his book, All in the Same Boat, John C.'s story stirred my heart, and how he tied them to his life in the business world helped me see that he went on his own successful hero's journey beneath the waves and brought back wisdom for all of us. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ren of Men. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the author, business leader, former submarine officer, and something of a Renaissance man himself, John Rennie. John Rennie, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, it's great to be here, Will. We connected on Twitter a little bit ago, and uh, I, I, I took a look at your book. And, you know, I grew up in the desert, but I have my, my heart is in sailing of all things. Like, um, but I've never, I've never been on a submarine, but there was always this kind of call, the submariner's call that was in my heart. And so I'm like, you know what, I'll give it a shot. And I read the book and the stories of your time in the Navy and the submarines and then in business. Um, really captured my imagination. So I said, you know what, uh, we just got to have a, a conversation about some of the stuff because I find your your background and your story so interesting. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you found it interesting. It is an interesting life. Um, you know, you know, now that I'm a little bit older and I can look back on my career, I can say, well, that was kind of unusual. You know, not not many people do that as a career, and it was uh, it was it was a great place to learn how to manage people, how to lead people. Mm -hmm. It was a great place to. I don't know, just learn. Um, I just get to serve your country, get to learn, uh, get to do some amazing things at a really young age. You know, a lot of times these a lot of people, you know, young people go work for companies and they, um, you know, they're not given, you know, tough, tough tasks. They're given, you know, the, the, the grunt work, the easy work. And uh, in this case, you know, I got some really difficult things to do early on in my career, which was great. I think one of the things you make really clear in the book is 
just how important it is to be on the ball uh, in in essentially being any sort of submarine off, officer. <laughs> I don't know where you went, but um, <laughs> my my monitor went out. I'm back. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, <laughs> dive, dive. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, just how you you in, in the start of the book, you really made it clear, like, no, it is really important that every submarine officer know everything about what's going on in the boat. You talk about your your qual card, and before we get into your actual time, you know, talk a little bit about how you came into the navy. You were quite young when you joined the navy, and you. Yeah. you it sounds like you knew you wanted to be a. Is it submariner or submariner? I, I want to make sure to say yeah, it. Yeah, submariner. Submariner. Yeah. Um, since it sounds like you wanted to be a, a submariner when you were a young age, so maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, your background. Yeah, you know, I um, I'm one of those. You know, a lot of kids when they grow up, they would say, "Well, I want to be an astronaut or a fireman or a police officer." You know, <laughs> sure. and they they have these you know young fantasies, and as, as you get older, you kind of change that a little bit, but. Early on, I had an interest in in the sea. I had an interest in being in the Navy. I had two grandfathers that uh, both served in World War II. One was in the Navy. One was in the Army. And, uh, you know, I heard their stories and their adventures. And I sort of imagined myself kind of going out on an adventure and doing some of the things that my grandfathers did. Um, and then somehow I got into really learning and reading about the World War II submarine crews and all the things they did, all the adventures and all the heroic acts that they, that they, um, you know, that they did during World War II. And I just was, and I thought to myself, well, that's a really unusual business, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Going underneath the ocean, you know, and of course, you know, the Cold War was in full swing. So it was us against the Soviets, which apparently we're back to it again. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, back then it was us against the Soviets. It was this Cold War been been going for a long time. Uh, We had Ronald Reagan as president. He was building up the Navy. Um, I was like, this is what I want to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. I really wanted to, to, you know, to, and I had this dream of being, uh, becoming a submarine officer and, and serving on submarines in the Navy. But, you know, from my background, I come from a blue collar background. My, my dad was blue collars. My grandfathers were blue collar. Um, my mom was a nurse. I mean, we, nobody in our family went to college or had mm-hmm. gone to college. Nobody had, um, I didn't know what an engineer was. I didn't know any of this stuff. So how does one become an officer on a nuclear submarine? Right. right. So, when you start learning and researching, you're like, oh, I got to be really good in school. I've got to be really good in, you know, I got to get good grades in high school. I've got to get myself into a top-notch engineering school. I got to perform very well. So there was a lot of hurdles in, in front of me to be able to do this. And, um, but it was also one of those, you know, like I think it's, it was a challenge, right? I think that, that men need a challenge. And I think for mm-hmm. me as a young man, I was like, yeah, all right, I can do this. And, you know, just like, you know, it's kind of false bravado, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm, I can do anything, right? You know, sure. as a young person, you feel like you can conquer the world. And, um, you know, and that's, and so I did, and, 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 and I was able to get through the whole thing. So get through, get into a good engineering school, get into, perform very well at engineering school, get accepted. You have to interview to get accepted in the submarine fleet, got in. And then, yeah, I ended up um, being a very young man showing up to the USS Tennessee at about 23 years old and um, got a chance to lead people, uh, you know, towards the end of the Cold War. I made seven deployments uh, during wow. that time. It was just phenomenal time and just a great, uh, just a great experience. It was everything I hoped and dreamed it would be. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so just a really neat, um, neat, uh, just adventure that I got a chance to do in my life. 
Yeah, you you said in the book you spent what ten, more than ten thousand hours. You know, you broke the Gladwell's ten thousand hour rule beneath the surface of the sea. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, probably two wow. years two years of my life of of that five years was was physically under the ocean, and um, yeah. So that you know, it's something that'll always be with me, even though it's been a long time since I've been out. It's something that um, it's it's a part of me. It's a permanent part of you know my DNA having that that mm-hmm. uh, experience. So uh, there was there was a scene where okay I've managed to make it almost six minutes without mentioning the hunt for Red October. I'm pretty proud. <laughs> I'm pretty proud. That's good. I'm pretty proud of myself. Um, well, that was one of my favorite movies as a kid growing up. Yeah, yeah, it's um, great. It's a it's a great film, and I remember in that movie, I think it's when Alec Baldwin walks into the submarine bay and you know there's the, the the giant submarine hanging up there and the sparks and stuff and it sounds like from the book like that's that actually happened to you on your you know you walked in you saw the tennessee hanging up there from you know and, and all the wires and the sparks like it's it sounds like that's a pretty accurate portrayal of 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 is it a dock or a bay what that what that moment was yeah she was in dry dock she was getting ready to go to sea and um and seeing a trident submarine out of the water uh, first time i'd ever seen one out of the water and, um, and, you know, I, I come around the corner, I've got my sea bag on my shoulder and, uh, I see this massive submarine out of the water and there's just hundreds of people working on it, getting it ready to go to sea. So there's, you know, there's, there's grinding sparks, you're, you're hearing welding, there's, there's generators running, there's smoke, there's, you know, there's, you can smell diesel in the air, people, you know, it's just loud and clanking and, and, and I'm like, holy cow. I mean, mm-hmm. this is. You know, a lot of people go to their first job, right? You know, like I, you know, you get, you get accepted a job, you go to your first job and you walk in, you're like, you know, wide eyed, like, what do I do? I don't know where the bathroom is. Where's the coffee machine? Where's my cubicle? Right. Mm-hmm. I, this was my job. This was, this was my workplace I was showing up to. And I was just completely overwhelmed. I, you know, the Navy, I think I say in the book, the Navy said I was ready for the fleet. But when I saw the Tennessee for the first time, <laughs> I definitely wasn't ready for this. Yeah. I was like, holy cow, there's a lot to learn. I, I was pretty pretty uh, young. And, you know, up, you know, you had a lot of confidence before I came around that corner. When I came around sure. the corner, it all went away. I was like, oh, shoot, <laughs> this is tough. So, yeah. I feel like that's, that's, that's so reflected in movies and novels. It's like the young man setting out on an adventure going to sea and he comes around the corner and there's the ship of some sort. And he like yeah, looks yeah. up at the tall ship. It's like, oh, what have I done? Right. And almost that's, in a way. That was, a, that was a hundred percent. It was, it was, um, you know, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's one of those things like well, the imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. That, um, it's something probably I struggle with a little bit mo- most of my life because of, I came from a blue collar background. I came from a place from a, you know, I grew up in New Hampshire, you know, people from New Hampshire don't do these things. People in my family don't do these things. So <laughs> why am I here? How did I get here? Someone made a mistake and l- allowed me to show up at the submarine, <laughs> right? So, so there's a lot of imposter syndrome yeah, in that. those early days, like, I think someone made a mistake here and I shouldn't be here, but you know, I deserve to be there. I had yeah. done everything to get there and, and I, and I ended up being a very good naval officer, uh, but probably had to work twice as hard as many of my peers just because I didn't come from, I mean, I, you know, I had to, it seemed like everything I had to work extra hard to be able to get there. So, mm-hmm. but that paid, I mean, that must've paid off. I mean, to see that sort of thing gets noticed, right? A young man got, comes on board a ship and, you know, the imposter syndrome, any man really can take a man down or can motivate him to work twice as hard just to meet his own standards for himself. And it sounds like the latter was true for you. 
Yeah. Yeah. I felt like I had to work hard to, to, to be a, to, just to prove my worth. And I, and, and I think it actually helped me to be, become a better officer because I did put the extra effort in. And I think coming from a blue collar, you know, family, a blue collar, you know, lifestyle, um, before I came into college and went to the boat, I really, um, got along well with the enlisted men, uh, on my boat, uh, because I, I, I felt my, I felt more like them than I did being an officer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I really did get along well with my teams. Uh, and, and I've always had that throughout my career. I tend to get along really well with blue collar employees because I think I, I think it's in my blood, uh, more mm-hmm. than it is even just being, you know, the guy in the corner office, you know, I, 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 I much more relate to the people on the shop floor than I do the people in, you know, that, um, you know, in, that are in the corner offices. Mm-hmm. And just to, just to sort of, we'll jump back to this later, but so w- what sort of work do you do now? You, you work in manufacturing, you, have, you said you have a shop floor, plant floor, and you've had, you've had a number of different manufacturing jobs at different levels, it sounds like. Yeah. When I got out of the Navy, I went into, like a lot of, a lot of um, you know, military people do, I went into corporate America. I actually mm-hmm. worked in corporate America for 22 years. And in that uh, 22 years, I ran eight different manufacturing plants. Mm-hmm. I started off in engineering, went into quality uh, and then, then I got an opportunity to run my first plant at 32 years old. I was running my first manufacturing plant. I was the youngest plant manager in that plant's history, and that, that plant been around 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually uh, ran a bunch of different plants, multiple plants. Um, and then uh, about six years ago, I got tired of corporate life, and I uh, quit, and I uh, started my own business. I started my own manufacturing business of which I've been running for just over six years now. So, but it's all been manufacturing based businesses. So, um, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm the kind of person if, if, if I can't hear the banging of tools or the making mm-hmm. of parts, uh, I, I feel like I'm lost. Right. So I'm the guy that can't just work in an office. Mm-hmm. I need to have, or I can work in an office as long as there's a manufacturing plant nearby. Cause I feel like, um, it's just what I, what I like and what I enjoy. It's my passion. Mm-hmm. And I, that's one of the things that I enjoyed reading about was you, know, you would talk about an experience on the boat and then, uh, and then you would relate it to your experience in, in the business world and you would show how these kind of two halves of your life, I guess you might say, yeah. fit together and, and are kind of really applicable. And that the experience on, on a, a submarine in some ways isn't so different. I mean, it's very different in some ways, but in some ways isn't so different from the experience of any kind of team that has to work very closely together to produce, you know, a, a really important result. Um, and I thought that was one of the things that was most interesting because I wouldn't have known that otherwise. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. But I think that the problem in, in corporate, at least what I learned is that, um, you know, in the Navy, we had a common mission. We all knew what our mm-hmm. mission was and we all, there was a shared, um, responsibility on board, uh, and there was a shared vulnerability, right? So if one person screwed up, we all die, right? I mean, everybody, <laughs> Yeah. If, the, if the most junior sailor turns the wrong valve, we all die. And by the way, the most junior sailor does perform a task called the TDU, which is the trash disposal unit, which is a hole at the bottom of a submarine where we force trash, we shoot trash out the bottom of a submarine. Our most junior people operate the TDU. If the TDU is operating correctly, you sink the submarine and everyone dies. So our most junior uh, employee, if you will, sailor, uh, is responsible for my life as an officer, for the wow. captain's life, for everyone's life. So everyone mattered, and we all knew what the mission was. When I got to corporate, what I realized was mm-hmm. is that um, there wasn't that uh, there wasn't that respect for the lowest people in yeah. the organization, right? So the people in manufacturing they could be outsourced. The people at the call centers, 
well, we can we can put those over in India, right? Um, so there was no respect for the people at the lower echelons of the company. And the other thing I noticed is everybody had a, you know, everybody was operating on their own personal agenda. Mm-hmm. And and we weren't working as a as a common group towards a common goal. So everybody was out, you know, managing their own career. Like I'm going to make myself look good, even if it makes another person in my company look bad, right? And so we we didn't have this shared mission and shared vision. We were sort of all in it for ourselves. There was this competition that that existed between managers to make sure you you got the money in your budget. You got to talk at at certain meetings that yeah. you got certain offices or you got certain perks. And, and so I was really shocked at that one. Uh, just that I just thought we were all in it together to mm-hmm. make our company better. And I learned that, that that wasn't the case. So, yeah. So part of, part of me, part of the difference was noticing that it, we weren't one team. We weren't unified. We were all kind of doing our own thing. Uh, you know, divisions of our company would compete against each other, you know, uh, and, it was just bizarre to me because it was like, well, I would go to me and say, well, why don't we do this? And then you win, I win, and we beat the competition. And and they, people would say, no, mm-hmm. this this only I win. That's how this works. Yeah. <laughs> just like, wow, that's really bizarre. So it took me a while to get used to uh, corporate life um, because it was so different from my days on the boat. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that, that I remember experiencing in, in the corporate world Um was the way that everyone is sort of in these loose kind of alliances where our, to the extent yeah. that our interests align, we'll work together. But the second our interests diverge, we become competitive at almost any level. And to, to build a, 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 I worked in the design side. So what I would do is I would manage, manage teams of designers. And mm-hmm. uh, so my, my job was sort of this interface level between um, marketing executives, let's say, and the, and the designers. So executives and de- designers, don't, they don't speak the same language. They both speak English, but they don't speak the same <laughs> language at all. No. So I would, I would translate back and forth. So it's, it's not necessarily difficult to get the designers to work together, but to shield them from the dynamics that are going on outside mm-hmm. of that was always very difficult. And it never made sense to me like, if we all win, we all win. Why are we all fighting with each other over things? It's and that was one of the things that is very difficult about the about the corporate world. And and I always tried to build something different during my time in entrepreneurship. So it sounds like it sounds like you had an even uh, uh, an even more uh, drastic kind of shift because again, on the submarine, the lowest level person, like if the janitor at your corporation like doesn't mop the floor well, right, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you're going to make it. But on a yeah. submarine, it's very, very different because you're all literally your lives are in each other's hands. Yeah, but you know, but it, but it is true that even in our companies, that our, that our most junior employee does is is critical to our mission. It's true, and I think one of the one of the areas that I've worked really hard to do over the years when I've run manufacturing plants and now with my own business is try to make sure that the lowest person in in the company understands how his job impacts the the overall mission of the company and and connecting their work to the mission has really been something that I've, I've worked hard to do. Uh, and it's something that's a little bit unique. So I actually see uh, the most, the most junior person is typically the most important person. I'll give you an example. I ran a plant in uh, Pine Tops, North Carolina, small town, uh, nice, uh, great factory, good people. But one of the things we would do for your most junior assignment. So the first, the people coming in the door that would be assigned to, um, you know, they would get a manufacturing job. They would do this thing called winding the core. So we'd have this, we have this steel core and we would wind insulation around it. So this typically the most junior person just wound this insulation around it. 
it's a pretty straightforward job. Um, but it's super critical. Like mm -hmm. if, if you don't get that right, then you'll have a short in the current transformer. And then that, that current transformer will have, you have to completely tear it apart and rework it. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the work of that one employee, albeit very junior, is essential to making a high quality product. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, one of the things that, you know, I would remind my employees, like, like everybody here is important. You know, our mission is this, right? Our mission is to, you know, to keep the lights on, right? To make sure right. that we have that, that utilities, you know, I, I work in the electrical utility space to make sure electric utilities have the parts to be able to keep the lights on. And your role, Mr. Wrapping Insulation, right? Mm -hmm. Mr. Junior Employee is critical to keeping the lights on, to, to making that, that product. And I think when people are, you know, we're, we're human beings, right? We all want to do worthwhile work, right? We want to know that our work matters and, mm -hmm. and we're not just some cog in the wheel, that, that, that what we do is important and what we do matters. And, and when, I can, when I can connect the, the employees with the mission, I think that they're more satisfied um, and we get a better performance as a team too. And it's something I've really tried to do over the years is, is connect the mission to every employee, you know, even especially the most junior employee. Mm -hmm. I think also maybe it also helps for the junior employees to know that their work matters to you. Like yeah. meaning you personally, yeah. like, oh my, I'm actually noticed by, uh, by the CEO, by the guy in charge, like he cares about what I'm doing. That's unusual experience for most people at, at the lowest level, you know, yeah, remembering it, it names. And it shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> it is unusual, but it shouldn't be. I mean, we, we, you know, it's funny because I always thought that the person in the corner office is the least valuable person in the organization because mm -hmm. I don't actually make anything, right? I, mean, I make decisions, <laughs> right? right. Uh, I, you know, I figure out hire, fire, you know, what's the mission, what's the goals, I resolve conflict, I make sure people have what they need to be successful. But at the end of the day, I'm not actually making anything. You right. know, I don't actually add value to the product like, like, like that junior employee I was talking about. And I think I've always approached it that way that I'm, I'm, I better earn my pay. I better earn my oxygen mm -hmm. if I want to be valuable as a leader. What what am I doing to 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 make this business better through my decisions, through my actions? And most of it is removing obstacles for my employees so they can get the job done. You use this phrase earn earn my oxygen. So let's <laughs> let's uh let's dive into that. Let's talk about some of your experience on the sub and 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 and, and where that phrase kind of comes from. Yeah, so um Submarine duty is is very very interesting. It's hard it's hard to explain. I try to do it in the book, but um, there is a there's a high level of positive peer pressure mm -hmm. to to get qualified. Mm -hmm. And what does qualified mean? It means that you um, there's a process on the submarine where you have to go through uh, and and earn your what we call your dolphins. So this is your yep. submarine. Uh, you're, the dolphins basically it's it's a it's a uh, emblem you place on uniform that says you're you're qualified in submarine operations so what they do is when you show up to the boat they give you this large what they call a qual card it's this big thick book and there's signatures on it so you have to learn every system from the bow to the stern and you have to be able to go to a very um, experienced sailor or officer and you have to prove to them that you have that knowledge as well and um, so when you're going through that process, you are considered a nub. That's what they call you on the boat. A nub is a non-useful body. So <laughs> you, um, it's interesting. I had a, Ryan Ramsey is a, a, 
was a British submarine uh, captain, and he was on my podcast uh, a few weeks back. And he said, he said this, I've never heard it before, and I really liked it. But he said, he said, if you are not qualified in a submarine, you are a passenger, mm-hmm. and there's no room for passengers on a submarine. So when you are a nub, when you're a non-useful body, when you're unqualified, you, um, there is a feeling, there is a terrible, it's a terrible feeling uh, yeah. because, and they will say that to you, sailors will say that to you, it's like, you're, you're, you're taking my oxygen, you're eating my food, and yet you can't back me up if something bad happens. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this high level of positive peer pressure to get qualified, so to earn your oxygen. And, and that's what we did. And we worked hard, you know, um, you know, for me, it was, you know, almost a year's worth of work after I got to the submarine before I had qualified on every watch station. I, I learned every system and a I year. had a signature in my book. So it was another year after I arrived before I was fully qualified wow. uh, and got my dolphin. So, you know, <laughs> it seems like in the submarine world, there was just one more hurdle. It was always a hurdle that you were trying to get over. And, um, you know, just getting to the submarine was was a dream come true. But becoming a qualified submariner, that was probably, uh, you know, next to the birth of my children and, and my wedding day, it's it's the most important moment of my life when I put those dolphins on my uniform uh, because it said I belong to an elite group and mm-hmm. I'm one of those. You know, you, you know, I liken it to Navy SEAL. When you get that trident, you know, put on your uniform, you are a special individual. Mm-hmm. And the submarine community f- is that way as well. It, it's it's not easy to become a sub- submariner, and once you become one, you're always a sub. We we call it a brother brother uh, brotherhood or brothers of the fin. So if you become mm. a, a brother of the fin at that point, now we have sisters of the fin. We didn't have them back then, but right. now we have brothers and sisters of the fin. But um, it's a brotherhood. It's special. Um, it's elite. Um, even now today, if I find somebody on Twitter that's submarine qualified, we're buddies. It, it's instant. Yeah. It, instant friendship because they know that what you've gone through. So, uh, and you've, you've achieved a very high competency level to where other sailors, other officers say, I trust you with my life because you're qualified. You're qualified to be here. You're qualified to back me up if something bad happens. So take, take me back into, or take us back into one of those moments when you were, you were getting your qual card. It can be a story from the book, like one of those really pivotal moments where it's like you, sink or swim, I suppose would be one way of putting it where it's like you ran up against a hurdle where you're in this pressurized environment, hundreds of feet beneath the ocean, and you're engaged in this, you spent years getting ready to get engaged in this one year long process to pass this <laughs> one qualification where it's just like it, where everything is going and it's all, it's, I mean, I'm sure there must've been mul- multiple moments like that during the process, but can you take us back into one of those moments that stands out for you? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, one of the first qualifications uh, that you go through uh, as an officer is you become um, engineering officer of the watch. So that means that you are per- you are in charge for our watches were six hours at a time. So for six hours, you were in charge of everything in the engine room. Now, let me tell you what's in the engine room: a nuclear reactor. Okay, yeah. that's, let's just start with that: a, a nuclear <laughs> reactor that's underwater. Underwater. <laughs> yes. So you, it's, so it's it's a nuclear reactor. So you have, so you have a you know, a reactor, a reactor compartment, and then, you know, the steam, uh, secondary steam runs all the turbines, which runs all the electrical equipment, which runs all the propulsion equipment. Everything in the engine room is yours. You're responsible for it. So that was one of the first things you have to get qualified for as an officer is to be engineering officer of the watch. <clears throat> so it was interesting. Uh, I, I, my first CO was uh, hard charging. Uh, he, was a, he was a tough 
he was he was mean, um, but I had a lot of respect for him. He had so much knowledge uh, about how to operate a submarine. And if we ever went to war, that's the guy I'd want to go to war with. Yeah. And I had a lot of respect for him. So I had I just finished my qualifications for engineering officer of the watch. I hadn't yet received my dolphins. I was still working through my qualifications, but I was finally qualified on this very major watch station. And so I stood my first watch. I, I you know, I'd, I'd done so many under instruction watches. I knew my stuff. I was, I was, I was confident, even though I was young and this was my first watch. And uh, so running the watch like normal, everything's going great. Uh, everything seems to be doing what I expect. I'm, I'm alone. It's just me and three other enlisted men that are running the reactor. I'm in charge of a nuclear reactor at sea. This is good. I'm cool. I'm, I'm achieving a life's mission, right? And all of a sudden, here over the one MC, the captain, and so he very nicely says, "Hey, I, you know, I'll let the entire. Well, I'm sorry, the one MC is the loudspeaker that goes throughout mm-hmm. the entire submarine. He says, I just want to let everybody know that our newest uh, qualified engineering officer watch is uh, Ensign Rennie. I was at the lowest rank I could be, and um, uh, you know, he's worked really hard to get this. So let's all give him, uh, you know, if you see him, congratulate him. Let's give him our support. And then he said, and Mr. Rennie, take care of my plant. And as soon as he said that, someone uh, scrammed the reactor. When scrambling the reactor means that all the control rods of the reactor go slamming to the bottom of the reactor at the same time, mm-hmm. which means that your reactor basically gets turned off mm-hmm. and we're submerged under the ocean. The rods are at the bottom of the core. We have no we have a certain amount of steam left, and my job is to recover the plant, so bring, mm. get the plant back up. And, you know, it's just one of those things that, like, you know, just give me a break. It's my first watch. You know, let me ease <laughs> right. into it. But there's no easing into it no. in, in the world of submarines. And and the captain was two things. One, he was acknowledging the fact that I had done all the hard work and I was right. finally qualified. But he was also saying, look, you got to be ready for anything, and here's mm. here's your first thing. And, um, you know... I recovered the plant. I'd done it so many times. I was able to do it. No no problems. Uh, Got the reactor back up and running again. But I just sat there and thought, wow, I cannot rest. I can't take, take, Mm -hmm. I can't, this is a dangerous thing that I'm doing and I can't just relax. You know, I can't get used to this. There, this is a nuclear reactor under the ocean, right? Mm -hmm. And that- A moving one. Yeah, exactly. So it was one of those things where I was just like, this is serious business, you know, and, and, um, and anything can happen at any time. I need to be prepared. So it was just one of those good reminders of, of um, you know, you know that I guess never be satisfied. It's just like that my whole career. You can feel like you've arrived. Oh, I'm you know I'm now the vice president, general manager of this plant, right? Yeah, okay. But am I prepared for everything that can happen to this business? Am I prepared that you know if one day um, you know. So someone takes over my job or, or, or fires me or you know, what, what am I doing in my life to prepare myself for whatever might happen? And so I think that's always been in the back of my mind since I went through that experience on the boats, but you got to be ready for, you know, and that's one of the things the captain always did was he, he made sure that we had been put through every situation so that we were prepared and it was like muscle memory. We knew what to do in every type of scenario. Yeah. I think one of the things that isn't obvious because uh, I've had some experience with this is the unique role of a captain on a ship. So yeah. I did a, I did a, um, uh, oceanic sailing trip in the South Pacific. So from Fiji to Vanuatu to New oh, Caledonia. Cool. So yeah, open ocean sailing, 35 foot boat. So I actually had a, a captain, a captain that I was working under and there's really no model. I think 
in in the regular world mm-hmm. for the importance of a captain at sea like it's like literally the buck stops here everything is on this guy and we were a crew of four which is very different <laughs> of a small boat like we got caught in a big storm in the middle of the ocean for like three days that was a fun experience that maybe oh. we can talk about later yeah it was that was <laughs> that was one of the key moments of my life actually um but but i know that a submarine the the, the responsibility of a captain it's not something that you can communicate. You have to kind of understand that this guy is responsible for how many how many men are on uh, on the crew of a submarine. We had uh, about 155. 155. And okay, how much does a boat like that cost? Like if you're just running out of Walmart? Oh, billion, 40 billion. Forty billion. <laughs> what? Something like that. A lot. <laughs> Is there a coupon code? It must be. I don't know. Oh my god, <laughs> that was so it's much- stupid. It, it's really no. I mean, we. The thing is, you know, they put twenty-three-year-old. I mean, kids in charge of it. That's the worst part. <laughs> oh, Forty billion dollar boat driven by twenty-three. When you put it that way, yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> I mean, just just one of the guidance systems on one of the warheads was a million dollars, and we oh. had twenty-four missiles. So yeah, it's oh. a lot of a lot of money. Oh my gosh, a lot and of responsibility. And we had a bunch. Of eight, I had a bunch of eighteen-year-olds working for me. You know. Oh. It's wild. <laughs> 18 years. Okay. So one thing you have this $40 billion boat with this nuclear reactor under the ocean and no, yeah. And there's a little matter of nuclear missiles. We yeah. Can. We had, we had, we had nuclear missiles. Yeah. Okay. Just, just a bunch. But just 24 of them. So just, it was fine. No, no problem. There'd still be something left. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, well, when you put it that way. Um, so that's a lot of responsibility on the captain's shoulders. Yeah, yeah, it really, it really was, and um, it's it's interesting because I, you know, I had a chance. I've never had a chance to interview my my two command. I had two commanding officers over my time. I never had a chance to sit down and talk to them afterwards. I was just working yeah. for them, and I went into the civilian world. But I had a chance to sit down with. I mentioned Ryan Ramsey, who was uh, who was a commanding officer in a, a British submarine, and it was really cool to talk to him about what it was like when he finally assumed command. When he finally. Mm-hmm. You know, when they cast off all lines, right? And you're the captain, you're it. Yeah. Like th- there is no, and submarines are really unique because we operate without any other resources. So we mm-hmm. go out into the world like a lone wolf. And yeah. so we have no support structure. We're operating hundreds of miles from our nearest asset and hundreds of feet below the surface. So we are pretty much in it alone. So as a commanding, as a commanding officer, you really are alone in that role. And yeah. And he said it was very nerve wracking in the beginning because you're, you know, because you're thinking, oh my, I'm it. There's no one to ask. I can't ask anyone. Right. But then, you know, after a while, he's like, you just fall back to your training. You fall back to what you know. And the other thing is he said, you have an executive officer. So you have your XO, your executive officer is someone that's, that's, that's near ready to take command. So you do have one other person on the boat that you can close the door and say, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? You know, and mm-hmm. you, you do have that executive officer as someone to help you in that role, but it's a pretty lonely role as a captain on a submarine. And uh, I mean, we had a captain who was an 06, uh, which meant he was a full, uh, he was a full captain. And um, he had been in the Navy probably 20 some odd years um probably 23 years my my first commanding officer and so it's funny because i think about now he that makes him he was like 46 years old but mm-hmm. he was the old man i mean he was like mm-hmm. he was ancient to us he seemed ancient to us yeah and he was like younger than i am now you know mm-hmm. and uh it's really bizarre to think that he was the old man and he was the 
the wise old saint, but he, you know, he really only spent 20 plus years, you know, under the ocean himself. So, yeah. What, what's the, what's the, the path to becoming a captain? You were on that path as an officer? Like, had you stayed yeah, on that road? Yeah. So there's two types of officers in the, um, in the Navy. There are line officers and there's staff officers. So line officers are the ones that your training always leads you to command. So at some point you're going to command a, uh, a ship, a boat, um, an aircraft, uh, you're, you're in a command role. So that's, that's what I was a line officer. And then you have staff officers. They're like medical, they're, uh, legal, they're, uh, supply officers, chaplain corps. So they're, they're basically supporting the, uh, the organizations, but they will never take command of an asset, a big asset, uh, at mm-hmm. sea. So I was on a command track. So yeah, what does it take? It takes a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, I bet. Uh, just like you know, I mentioned a lot of the hurdles I had to go through just to get on board, and then and then all the hurdles to to get qualified. You every every role, it, you know, there's 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 more and more hurdles to go through. So typically, the path is you do what's called a junior officer tour, but that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're a junior officer for. Um, you know, again, my time was five years on board. And then typically you go to some sort of a shore duty for a couple of years, then you come back as a department head. So you're, so you're running, you have multiple junior officers working for you. Uh, and then you, uh, you do a shore rotation, you come back as an executive officer, and then you Mm -hmm. go shore rotation, you come and you go to command school. And if you can, if your performance is good all through that whole time. So there's basically four steps to getting command of a submarine. So when the captain says to you on, on your, on your first day as you're passing the engineering of the watch, like take care of my plant. Yeah. There's power in those words. Oh, he, it was his plant. It was his boat. I mean, there was yeah. no doubt about it. I mean, that guy was, um, I mean, you know, he, he, he was the wise old man. I mean, we wanted to, I had so much respect for him. That see, that's one thing about interesting about uh, being in the Navy was that, you know, like in the civilian world, you might work for a boss that's clueless. You might work for a boss that does has less experience than you do. You might work for a boss that uh, couldn't lead a group of people, you know, lead a tiger to, to raw meat. Right. So so but in the Navy it was different. So to get to the highest levels in the Navy, you had to pass through the lowest levels first. Mm -hmm. So we knew our captain had done everything that we had done already. And then some, and, and, and so he'd done everything we've done and I've done this and I've done this and Mm -hmm. I've done that. So we had, we had tremendous respect for our department heads, our executive officer and our commanding officer, because they had been in our shoes. They had earned their oxygen. They had moved up. They were competent. And the other thing is we had, we had tremendous respect for our peers. My peers had to go through the same hell I had to, to get to, to get to the same spot. So there was a lot of mutual respect on board that I never saw in the civilian world. (laughs) So, you know, I just saw, I saw bosses that, you know, were terrible. And he's like, how did you get into this role? Well, I knew Mm -hmm. somebody, you know, or, you know, you get promoted not based on time and service and, and, and meeting certain benchmarks. You do it for, Sometimes it's because you you know somebody and somebody trusts you or somebody you know gives you a chance or whatever. So promotions in the civilian world are much more um, random than they were in the navy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you had to earn your way up the ladder. You had to earn your way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and you have to be trained, like in getting your qual card, you know, getting your dolphins. You had to be trained 
on indiv- individual systems and practices yeah. by men who knew what they were doing and they had to di- transfer the knowledge directly to you and they wouldn't sign off on you until they were satisfied. And, and Correct. you know, yeah. so you couldn't, you couldn't really be on board unless you knew how to do everything. And in the corporate world, that's not necessary at all, really, unfortunately. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you, you couldn't fake it on the submarine, <laughs> right? You can fake it in corporate. <laughs> yeah. I saw that a lot. So, so as, yeah. a, as the CEO now, do you feel like you try to bring some of that captain spirit? Like obviously, you know, knowledge work, it's, it's difficult to, to do the different modes of knowledge work. Like you wouldn't learn the accounting and the graphic design. It's not, it's not, it doesn't really map the same way, but do you try to bring some of that spirit to your leadership now? Yeah, I do. I, you know, obviously I want to, I think one of the best things that leaders can do is, is to hire really good people yeah. and then get out of the way. So yeah. I don't try to, I try to, uh, uh, I try to get out of my people's way and try to make sure they have what they need. And then I, I, I let them do what they do. But yeah, I do have a lot of knowledge only because I've been doing this for 30 years that I do have a lot of knowledge about business. So I, you know, and I come from the design engineering world too. So, you know, I, I know how the products work. I know how they're tested. So sometimes I find myself, this this is a hard thing too, is in, in people who are listening that, that might be more senior. Sometimes you know the answer before, but before your your junior employee can figure it out. Yeah. And there's a tendency to say, no, 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 no. This is the way it's got to be. Let me show you and why. And so I, I tend to be just the opposite. I tend to let people explore a little bit and try to find the right answer without um, me jumping ahead and uh, and giving the answer to. Because I think it's part of, it's re- really important that I feel like employees can learn and develop on their own without a boss telling them how to do things. So, uh, and I would purposely let people make mistakes and mm. to paint themselves in a corner sometimes. And, and just because I think, you know, especially if it's in a controlled, you know, situation, I know it's not going to harm my customers or the product or anything, but I'll, I'll just let them paint themselves in a corner and just to see, you know, for them to learn through that experience. Like they, they said, well, I did this. It's like, why'd you do it that way? Well, I felt that was the best way to do it. Then what'd you find out? Well, it wasn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but I think, I think we're too quick sometimes in corporate, especially to, um, to jump in and help people and not, not give them the opportunity to learn. And the one thing in the Navy that taught me was that failure is a powerful uh, teaching tool. And they did a really good job putting us in situations where we would fail a lot, but in a controlled environment so that we would learn because, mm-hmm. you know, when, nobody likes to fail and it's a very emotional reaction when you fail, especially in front of your peers, in front of right. other sailors. <clears throat> so you want to learn to make sure you do it better. And I think that's something that I learned and I try to do with my people as well. Let them fail, give them opportunities to make mistakes, learn from those mistakes. And so, um, yeah, so I, I do that a lot more. So <clears throat> do I know most of my systems in my company? Yeah, I do. <laughs> but I mm-hmm. try not to. I play dumb a lot, I'm, I, you know, because I, I do I do want my employees to, to make decisions. And I, I want to empower them to do things without me telling them what to do. So mm-hmm. I will tend to, you know. You know, I'll say to my engineering manager, well, you know this better than me. You know, you you can lay out, you know, the part numbering system at however way you want to. You know this better than me. You know, come up with a plan and then let's and just do it. You know, and even though in the back of my mind, I'm like, I got a plan and exactly how I'd do it. But right. I let that go. <laughs> so yeah. I just want to, you know, give them an opportunity. Let's talk a little bit about the a little bit about the importance of failure. Because I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine today about the lack of hardship in most men's lives today, and and uh, 
you know, I think that's a, that's, that's a net good thing in some ways where it's like, we're, we're very fortunate to live in an age where life is easier. And yet at the same time, there's still something about living during more challenging ages that I think we might be lacking and that we could learn from. And, uh, you know, I don't think that we should be roving bands of gangs foraging on the frontier. Like I, I would like, like to not go to that way of living, but I think one, one of the things that, that I think we do need is more opportunities to really fail. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic that the opportunities to fail were created on board this hyper expensive submarine, but yeah. you have to have them, you know, cause if you don't, if you have to try all these different things and learn what doesn't work to really appreciate what the right thing to do is and why. And, and it's, so this paradoxical kind of way of learning that the stakes for failure are so high, which is why you have to learn how to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I you know I raised two boys. Both my boys, uh, one's twenty, he's in the navy. The other one's twenty three, he's an accountant working for a big, uh, big accounting firm. Um, but one of the things I, I I worried raising my boys is that they they had it a lot better than I did growing up. You know, sure. we grew up fairly fairly poor. Um, you know, we we had to make opportunities for ourselves. I worked since I was fifteen years old, um, and I think there's there's power in that, you know, um, the opportunity to, to, to do difficult things at a young age is really good for you because you build resilience and you build, you know, you, you become, um, you know, you develop grit. You have this ability to, to, to be able to do difficult things and not quit when they get hard. Right. So I grew up in that kind of environment. I was always worried my boys wouldn't, wouldn't have that grit because, Mm -hmm you know, they, we went on vacations all over the world. They, you know, mm. they, you know, they, they went, got to go to England. They got to go, you know, we went to all the national parks. We, we did all the stuff that I never did. I mean, we, our, our vacations were, we went to a campground in, in, in my home state and that was mm. our, that's our vacation. And, um, I think that boys, especially boys becoming men have to be challenged. They have to be, do difficult things if they want to build resiliency. And part of that, is failing. Part of that is doing difficult things and falling on your face and realizing it's not the end of the world that you just get up, you can, you can learn from it and you can get better. Um, but we've kind of, <clears throat> society is now kind of nerfed over. Everything's nerfed over and you're, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to fail. You're not allowed to say anything wrong. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, you're not allowed to do any, you know, you can't color outside the lines. Everything has to be, you know, and it's because we're trying to protect everybody from being hurt. Man, hurt being hurt is great. I mean, it's yeah. it's great because it builds character and it builds who you are as a person. Um, I mean, let me just say, if you've not done hard things, don't become an entrepreneur. I'll tell you that because you yeah. will fail miserably because becoming an entrepreneur is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And, and I've done some hard things. Uh, so, yeah, I think failure, I think tough, tough times, I think tough, um, you know, doing difficult things builds a character that you need to be able to do other difficult things. You build that baseline of, okay, I failed, but I didn't die. Mm-hmm. What, what happened? Right. <laughs> How do I get better? What do I need to do differently this time? You know. Mm-hmm. So what did you do? That's one of the questions that I know many fathers um, in my life, I, I'm not a father yet, so but something that I'm considering <laughs> as well is, 
you know, there, there is always a temptation for any parent, you know, who grows up with a measure of prosperity to insulate their, their, their children from, from struggle and failure. I grew up that way. Like I didn't, I didn't struggle. I, I struggled in school, which is not exactly the same thing, right? Like I well in school, yeah. but that's not the same thing as going out and like, Hey, go spend the night in the woods overnight on your own or something like that. That sort of hardship. And I know a lot of men in my life are thinking about, well, how can I raise my sons with a little yeah. bit of, uh, of a, of a proper adversity, proper opportunity to fail, uh, so that they develop those skills. Did, what What did you do for your sons, if if anything, in, in amongst uh, in amongst all the travel? I might ask you some questions about travel too, because it's something <laughs> that I've been blessed to do. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I think I think obviously, you know, like they got a chance to go on vacations. They got they got to, to, to travel, go on cruises, do all these kind of cool things. But um, we also both my wife and I kind of didn't grow up with money. So we yeah. always kind of tried to reinforce the importance of, you know, appreciating the moment, you know, like I remember the, the boys were young at the time and they were goofing off. We were at the grand Canyon, you know, and my, my wife and I, you know, it spent 30 years of our lives to get to the grand Canyon for the first time ever, you know, right. and here's our boys, which are, they might've been six and nine at the time and they're goofing off and playing grab ass and all this. And we're like, <laughs> my wife just gets down in their face. He goes, it took me 35 years to get here. You turn around, you enjoy this scenery, you know, yeah. and, and just sort of reinforcing that. Like we're at, a, we're at doing something that's very special. That this is mm-hmm. not, not many people get to go do and experience the things that we're doing. So always having that awe, having that chance to really appreciate what they were doing at the moment. Um, but, you know, the other thing was when they, when both my boys turned 13, we did a rite of passage trip with them. Wow. So, um, so my first boy, we, uh, we went to the mountains of North Carolina for, I think we were five days in the woods, uh, packed it in. We, we had a whole hiking route that we did and we, uh, had our tents and our food and we fed, we foraged for water along the way. And, um, and it rained on us most of the time. And we had this amazing experience, um, in the woods where, and, 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 and when that was done <clears throat> after that trip was over for both my boys, I said, you're a man now, Mm. you know, what you're, you're a Rennie man now. So what, what would a Rennie man do in this situation? So when they run up against troubles or or situations, I'd say, look, you're not a kid anymore. You're, Mm -hmm. you're a man. What, what should a man do in this situation? And those, those are really important um, because I noticed my boys acted differently after those trips. They, they um they acted like men they or they thought about consequences of their decisions or consequences of their of the things they were doing the other thing is we made them get jobs so both my boys worked um as soon as they could 16 years old they both worked um and so it gave them the opportunity to have a boss deal mm-hmm. with that situation you know to be able to earn some money and to there's a pride in working you know yeah. and so that was really important to us and then um we did pay for college. We did save money for their college. And um, so that was fairly easy. But again, we reminded them, look, you're you're going to get a college degree uh, and not have any student loans. You know, right. that is something that's really special. And so what are you going to do with that time? You know, your time in the in, in college, how are you going to make the most of it? How are you going to be able to get, you know, get to the most of it? And, and my oldest son, he did undergrad and a graduate degree right away and uh, got a phenomenal job. Um, as an accountant, and he's he got a he got his degrees, and he's and he's you know he's he escaped you know he, he escaped velocity you know you know escaped into the world, launched into the world, and then my youngest son he did a year of college, and 
he said, you know, Dad, I don't think I'm utilizing this as best as I could. I want to do something more difficult. Mm -hmm. And he joined the Navy. He joined the military and he enlisted. And uh, he's been phenomenally successful uh, through that. So I think it's, it was, part of it was, you know, not, and and the other thing is, I would say when they're younger, there was a lot more uh, control, a lot more you know, don't do that. Don't do this. Yes, you can do that. But as we, as they got older, there was less of control where we kind of let go and let them explore who they wanted to be in the world, who they, what are the things they were interested in? Um, you know, they played sports. They both, um, excelled in different, different sports. And, and, um, but we didn't force them like, you're going to play baseball. You're going to play football. You're right. We let them explore what they wanted to do and what they, when they found their passion, something they're really interested in. And we would always support them in that passion, support them what they wanted to do. So <clears throat> they ended up both getting into weightlifting and they're both very large individuals. So they, they're very, <laughs> they're very, uh, so the, they, the dad was always weightlifting and they both got into it and they excelled and they both are bigger than their dad now. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of happens, doesn't it? It does happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but I think that, I think the weightlifting was a big part of them challenging themselves and pushing themselves and, and doing things that were very difficult. And uh, I think for both of them, weightlifting was a big part of, you know, doing something difficult for them, you know, because mm-hmm. you can't, you can't cheat in the weight room, you know? No, no, you can't negotiate with the barbell. Listen, no. It doesn't, doesn't care how you feel. <laughs> Gravity mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't care. Well, this, this sounds like, uh, I know that a lot of people really lament the state of, you said your boys are in the, in the first half of their twenties, like 22, 23, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 23 and 20 right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I know a lot of people lament the, the state of the state of the youth these days, but it, it sounds like you have a couple of boys that, you know, really turned out to be success stories and, and sort of managed to beat the odds for where a lot of young men are today. I certainly hear about it in my work, you mm-hmm. know, talk to a lot of guys that look at, uh, that look around like teenagers, for example, I know like your youngest boys just out of being a teenager and they're just like, they just shake their head and they don't really know what to do looking at the landscape. But it sounds like, it sounds like your boys, you know, they had, the, they had the benefit of the proper discipline of failure of trying mm-hmm. structure that really shaped them into productive contributing members of society, I guess you might say. Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm really proud of them both. Um, and uh, I mean, my 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 youngest son who's in the Navy, he's he's ranking up next week. I'm flying up to to pin his next rank on him, and so oh, he's wow. very quickly. You know, he's he's been in only in for a year and three months, and he's moved very quickly up the ranks. So um, yeah, I'm pretty proud of him. So he's he's taken the military like probably better than I did. So he <laughs> he seems to just get it, and he he fits really well in the military. He must, he must feel a certain kind of pride. He, is he on submarines or is he on a, a, a no, ship? No, surface ships. Surface <laughs> I ships. I couldn't oh. talk him into submarines. So, so. <laughs> Is that a thing? That must be a thing in the Navy, surface ships. Yeah, okay. it is. We, we say that there's two kinds of ships. There's submarines and targets. So that's, that's our mindset. So. Well, there are jets too, right? Like you've got all know. the... Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> maybe something like that. Yeah. So yeah, we're actually submariners are afraid of planes. So the P three Orion was a very capable anti submarine mm. aircraft, and we hated it. So <laughs> that's the thing with the big, the big halo on it, right? Uh, big- no, it's the one. Um, if you ever see them, they've got a long. Well, they're out of service now. They have new. They have new designs, but they used to have this long tail on the back of it, and that was a magnetic anomaly detector. They could fly around the ocean, and they could sense the metal of a submarine under the ocean, and that magnetic. Whoa. The tail would would send a signal. So, oh wow, 
yeah, they were hard to get away from. So we get away from ships, but those planes were pretty, pretty tough. It's hard to get away from being a big piece of metal under the ocean. That's that's a tough one. It is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, you were under the water during, this was during the cold war as well. Like this was when things were, things were pretty serious. Like that was real. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I've seen Soviet boats and Soviet ships through the periscope. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's bizarre. I'm watching, um, you know, what's happening in, um, in Ukraine right now. And the, and the tanks are flying the Soviet flag. I don't know if you've seen those pictures, but to me, I I just get, you know, the hair stands up on my arm. I'm like, no, not this again. I mean, we did this already. We went through 50 years of cold war and, um, yeah. So I don't know that, 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 uh, it does bother me that, um, I mean, I don't think people realize the potential threat of a Russia, you know, U.S. engagement would be. I think they think, mm-hmm. well, it's just like Iraq, Afghanistan, it should be fine. But I mean, this is Russia. This is a, a yeah. big country they, with a lot of, high, you know, nuclear capable, you know, difficult. It would be a difficult enemy. So I, in my mind, I don't, I don't think we should be <laughs> seeking to increase any sort of uh, engagement with them anytime soon. That's for sure. I agree. I mean, it's not, Russia is not exactly the same as the Soviet Union back in the day, but that doesn't mean they're any less formidable and they're any less serious about the things they want. And, you know, not to get too far into politics, but we've just come off a couple of rough years in America and maybe now is not exactly the right time to be yeah. thinking about these things. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of pissed at Putin. You know, we finally got the chance to, <laughs> we, although I guess he did single-handedly end the pandemic, but anyway. Amazing, right? Yeah. But uh, no, I mean, we just went through two years of hell. Uh, we've had not had our, our lives. Uh, and now suddenly, um, yeah, now he had to pick the fight with Ukraine. And that's all anyone's talking about. So, yeah, yeah exactly. For, for now, anyway. For now. But um, yeah, so I, you know, the Cold War was in full swing. Um, it was towards the end. Uh, when my first patrol, there was uh, tons of Soviet boats out there and ships. Um, and then my second patrol, there were less. And my third patrol, there was even less. And by the time I was uh, finished my seventh deployment, uh, there was nobody. They were gone. They were completely oh, wow. gone. Yeah, they couldn't afford to uh, operate their ships, feed their feed and pay their sailors. So they just were gone. It was. It, it, I shouldn't even say this, but it's it was okay. kind of sad. It was yeah, sad. I, was say. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like um, I mean, if you train to be a fighter, right, and your opponent comes in the ring and he's just not at his best. I mean, yeah. it's you know it's kind of sad. You're like, well, I, I, I trained for this. I want to, I want an adversary. So mm-hmm. in a way it was a little bit like, ah, oh, well, that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that's, you live in, you live in a certain way for so long, you know, with where you have to be on guard, on watch, on point, you know, because right, you, right. the threat is real. And then, and yeah. then you slowly over the course of a number of years, watch the, the threat kind of fade away and, yeah. and the enemy, your opponent, who you had so much respect for, just kind of disappear from the battlefield. And yeah. there is a certain grief in that. I don't know that that's well understood about men, that the respect that we have for an evenly matched opponent, like that's a real thing. You may want to win, you know, yeah. and it may yeah. be even that we're talking, we're talking about global stakes, right? This isn't just, you know, sparring in the ring with the guy down the street at the gym, right? This is, this is, this is serious and this is real. And nonetheless, there's something honorable about that, I think. It is. Yeah. And, and it's something that people don't, I mean, if you're not been in the military, you don't quite understand right. it. I know, you know, so when I was in um, desert, the first desert storm happened and, and um, one of the ships, one of the submarines, I think it was the, 
Pittsburgh, I'm pretty sure it was a Pittsburgh, got a chance to fire cruise missiles um, during the first invasion, the first uh, Gulf War. And I remember it's the first time that a submarine had fired in anger since World War II. Wow. And I was on, I was not on that submarine. And everyone, I can tell you, everyone in the submarine force was, was pissed off that they weren't on that submarine. I bet. We, we trained to do our job, you know, and to, in defense of our country and in, in support of whatever, you know, missions that we had. And to not be a part of that, you know, we, we think of like my, my son's in the Navy, right? Mm-hmm. What do I want as a parent? I want him as far away from the conflict as possible. <laughs> right. right. He wants the opposite. And he wants the opposite. And yeah. I wanted the opposite, yeah. you know, which is really interesting. You know, uh, we want to do our jobs. We want to do difficult things. We want to get a chance to do what we're trained to do, you know? So, I mean, imagine being on that submarine, the first first submarine that fired a weapon in anger since World War II. I mean, that's historic. Mm-hmm. And I was in the submarine fourth of the time, but not on that submarine. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. It's a bummer. So makes total sense. What a what a rush, you know, what a thrill to be to be on board that boat and, and to actually be able to to light one of those candles and, and send it out. Like this is what we've trained for. This is this why what we're we actually- trained for, yeah. And we're doing it in support of a mission that was really important for this for the United States. And and um, you know, again, me being a World War II history buff, mm-hmm. following all those, you know, uh submarine stories and the crews and all the things that they did, and then Hey, we're making history ourselves here now, and I'm not on the boat making history. I'm on another boat doing other things, but still, it's one of those things that, you know. I mean, I think again, we were talking about earlier. We want to do things that matter. You know, yeah. we want to, we want to, we want to know that our uh, that we what we do matter as as people. And so I think, yeah, it would be would have been nice to be in on that boat at the time, but um, yeah, thankfully I've never had any uh, any real conflict with the Soviets during that time. They were. You know, they harass us. There was just a game that we played. So every time we come out of port, they would be there and they'd, you know, they would, you know, be photographing us and, you know, they they would, you know, be blocking us and trying to, you know, get in our way. And we just sort of went around them. It wasn't really much. It was like a little cat and mouse game that we played. But they're not like parked at the at the exit, like you're talking about miles, right? Like miles of distance between you or is it it's not that close? How close is it? Oh, I could see them with my naked eye. Oh, wow. <laughs> I could see people with binoculars with my naked eye. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. To see the Soviet flag is with my naked eye. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. So it was, I mean, they're that close to the U.S. coast. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, they were, they were there to, you know, again, they were just, they knew, they, they wanted to know what was going on. You know, we were deploying. They wanted to see, you know, what was going on. Sure. Yeah. They would um, they would re- record our propeller noises too. So we would we would do all sorts of things like we'd run our diesel generators, we'd blow a lot of smoke and we'd make a lot of noise so they couldn't pick up a signature, a noise sign, our uh, our propeller signature. So we'd do all sorts of things to mask our our signature. And yeah, we would. I mean, some stupid things like we we had we had baseball hats for other ships, so other boats, and so we mm-hmm. would change our baseball hats to the other ship. Mm-hmm. So, so they would see our baseball. I say, "Oh, that must be the USS Pennsylvania," but we were the Tennessee, and yeah. you know, so we would do sorts of sorts of things to kind of mask what we were doing. So it was didn't fun. Have, didn't yeah. have it spray painted on the side in quite the same way that other boats do. <laughs> no, not quite that. But we did a lot of things to, to um, you know, to mask who we were and what we were doing. So, so it was kind of like this is this dance a little bit in the water. You never had any active conflict or at least nothing no. that you can talk about, you know, between, between the boats. No, you know, it was always a dance. It was always a, 
you know, to, to my surprise, and this was, this is really surprising to me as a, as a young officer, I had no clue, you know, and I, I qualified as officer deck and officer deck is the, the officer that gets to, you're responsible for that six hour shift. You're responsible for the entire boat. Uh, so that was a fun job. I love being officer deck, but I remember through my training, I learned like, oh, uh, by the way, this book over here is, this is how we communicate with the Soviets if we ever get into where we, we have to talk to them. I was like, wait, what? what? It's like, oh no, here's this agreement that we have. And so this is how, when this is, these are the commands that we give and, and, and this is what they mean. Mm-hmm. So we actually had a method to communicate with the Soviets. Oh, it was okay. really wild. I'm like, really? There's a book for that. And, and they had a book on their, their ships as well. And so we could, we could send signals back and forth and they knew what it meant. So it wasn't like a transliteration book where you're actually like saying Russian words or was it some of that too? No, it was just a number of different commands. Like uh, I'm, I'm coming hard, right? Uh, hard to port. Oh, I'm coming hard to starboard. Um, I have engine problems. It was just I all see. sorts of things. And and I was really surprised. I'm like, well, oh, that's kind of cool. I thought we were adversaries, but I guess we had, you know, uh, that's the one thing. It was like two nation states against each other, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's a lot different than what we, the experiences we had in Iraq and Afghanistan, where you had a lot of, you know, small cell terrorist yeah. cells that didn't operate with, with much uh, of a, you know, much much order. In in the, in the case of the Soviets and Americans, we both sort of had a, we had, you know, it was organized, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and 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 the reason they had these codes in place was to prevent an escalation that would prevent something bad yeah. from happening and then things escalating out of control. So, yeah, you have to, you know, someone thought that through like, okay, well, if in case you get into a situation, we need to make sure that they understand each other real clearly. So this doesn't turn into something that it's not meant to be because yeah. you have two, yeah. you know, young guy, you know, boats full of young guys in the young twenties all wanting to do the job being <clears> war <throat> fighters. And it's like, well, how do we communicate with them? How do we make sure there's no misunderstanding? We don't start yeah, a war. Yeah. Just, you know, okay. <laughs> that well, makes sense. You, talk, you talked about hunt for red October. Do you remember there was a, yes, was I didn't a... bring it up a second time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they sort of had that and they were, they, they, you know, one ping only and, you know, yeah. thing. so they were signaling to each other and, um, and they were trying to figure out what they were doing with each other. And so that was yeah, very, that was real. So there's a lot of that's real. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and that, that actual scene of the sub coming up out of the water, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the emergency boat, that was a real sub. They did that with a real sub. Yeah, absolutely. And they did, they did a bunch of times for the filming of that. And I think, you know, for those listening, if you haven't seen the Hunt for Red October in a long time, go go watch it because so good. that emergency blow is a real U.S. submarine. Uh, um, it was actually the Houston, but in the movie it was called the Dallas, but it was actually the USS Houston, I believe. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I think yeah, so. that's it. I, and that actually did the emergency blow, but it's pretty, pretty, uh, wild to see, but this was before CGI, you know, before yeah. now, now uh, this was real. So you're actually seeing real footage of a submarine, you know, doing an emergency blow, which is, it's a wild ride. I mean, that's one of the coolest things you get to do as a submariner. So. Men, I'll cut right to it. There's probably something missing from your life, and I bet you don't even know. And that is a mission or purpose. A mission is more than a job, a career, or even a vocation or hobby. It's bigger than that. It's a godly pursuit that underlies all your most significant thoughts, words, and actions. If you seek to lead your family and your household, your purpose is the direction you're leading yourself in, and therefore your family undertakes the journey with you. Your purpose takes you beyond yourself, challenges you to expand your self-concept, 
confront your fears, acquire new skills, forge durable bonds of friendship and brotherhood, and most importantly, helps you contribute to the rebuilding of civilization. If that sounds too good to be true, it isn't. Because your purpose is a gift. But here's the catch. To receive that gift, you must be ready for it. And that is the nature of my coaching. I'm a man who has been blessed with a purpose, and it's more than just this podcast. I've got something I'm working on behind the scenes that I know you're going to love. And pursuing that purpose has taught me the secrets of what it takes to cultivate the purpose. Now I want to pass it on to you. Having a purpose has changed my life, and I think it can change yours too. And to do that, we have work to do. If you're interested in learning more, the content on my website is currently being updated to reflect my new program. In the meantime, email me at info at renofmen.com to start the conversation and schedule a free 30-minute consultation. Mention the code word PURPOSE and I'll offer 10% off a 12-week package. I'll also let you in on my top secret purpose behind the scenes so you can see that I know what I'm talking about. Once again, email me at info at renofmen.com and mention the code PURPOSE to get 10% off a 12-week package. I started the Renaissance of Men to help men become the best versions of themselves through self-knowledge. If that sounds like you or the version of yourself you want to be, email me and let's get started. Yeah, you talked about in the boat how when the sub goes beneath the ocean, you said someone tied a string across two ends of the compartment. <laughs> yes. So to talk yeah. through that, because that was just like, oh, man. Yeah, so um, when I was uh, training, uh, before I got to the fleet, I was still uh, uh, what they call a midshipman. So I was still going to college. I was ROTC. So I spent my summers deployed. We would go to different places, different ships, different boats. But I was on the USS Guitaro out of San Diego, which was a fast attack submarine. And it was a smaller submarine. And um, so we went out to sea off the coast of San Diego and we did, did a dive down to test depth. And so they told all of us midshipmen, like, go down to the torpedo room. We want to show you an exercise. And I'm like, all right, right. So, but before we submerged the ship, we tied uh, the, the torpedo men down there, tied a tight string from both ends of the compartment. And as we went down to test depth, that string went slack and continued to get slack until it touched the deck. Whoa. And so it was one of those things that like, oh, shoot, <laughs> this yeah. is real. So, I mean, this is, this is the ship, you know, under pressure and uh, the, the impact that it makes on, on, uh, on the boat. So it's a constant reminder that the enemy, although being the Soviets at the time, was actually the ocean. I mean, keeping yeah. the ocean out of the people compartment was a really important role. So. Yeah, and, and how like when it touched the deck, how far up off the deck was it when he tied it? <clears throat> yeah, it was probably uh, 14, 18 inches. Okay, so it wasn't like it. five feet. Yeah, okay. no, no, no. <laughs> okay. but it was enough to it was enough to notice. It was enough for all of us midshipmen to go, okay, this isn't comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the ocean is it's real. It's like it's a nuclear power plant under the ocean. It's moving. Oh, by the way, the ocean, <laughs> right? Yeah, That's a big yeah, problem. exactly. And and it was kind of cool because you know on the Tennessee, you know, I'd made many patrols. And um, I was the officer deck for, for for so many watches that we went to test depth through my time. But it's got to the point where I guess got used to being a test depth. So you would hear the creaking, the groaning of the boat as she went down. And, eh, you know, when you first hear it, when you're a young officer, you're like, oh, shoot, something's wrong, you know. Yeah. But you just it was you kind of got used to it. That was like, OK, well. If she's creaking and groaning, she's, you know, the water's not coming in. So she's just, 
you know, doing what she does, you know, it, it, it was the steel on the hull was HY80 steel, high yield, high strength steel. And, and it just, but you know, it was, it's, it's ocean pressure, you know, it's just, you know, squeezing you down. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the ocean, the ocean doesn't want you there. It's not that it doesn't actually care, but like, it's not, it, it's not hospitable to you being there. No, it's not a place for humans. No, like, like right. flying, you know, we're not supposed to be in the air either. <laughs> so. No. Yeah. It's like, what is it? Someone told me about the forces on a jet, you know, it's like, it's trying yeah. to move forward while being pushed back by the air and it's trying to go up while it's being pulled down by gravity. And you got to think oh, about yeah. it. And it's freezing cold up there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, my dad was a, my dad was a, a, a trainer pilot for the air force. So he flew oh, T-38s. Wow. Yeah. So he trained. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he trained other pilots. They he graduated, you know, on top of his class in flight school, and they gave him the oh, choice: like you can have any assignment you want. And so the choices were Vietnam or be a trainer. And so, it, oh so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, I'm going to be a trainer. I'll so, take a trainer. Yeah, exactly. Take, yeah. So that's you know the, the forces. It's not obvious. Like you got to think through this stuff <laughs> about what it might actually be like to be in one of these vessels where it's under the ocean or up in the air or, yeah. you know, like an aircraft carrier, like what's happening and all these things. It's a very <laughs> unique environment that there's no, there's no equivalent for on, on land. You know, you work for a company, yeah. you go home at the end of the day, like home for you at the end of the day is a, is a rack bunk with eight other guys in the compartment, still yeah. hundreds of feet beneath the ocean. Like you're not, you're yeah. not getting yeah. in the car and driving back to, to your, you know, to your house or anything like that. No, it was a it was a twenty four seven business. That's mm-hmm. the one thing that you know. I don't know if anyone you know can really appreciate it, but you know if you had a bad day as a leader, <clears throat> you can't you know you can't go to the bar and have a beer at the right. end of your shift, right? There's no beer on board. Um, you can't um, you know you can't go home at the end of a tough week and just take the weekend off and just relax and spend time with your family. I mean, it was twenty four seven while you were mm-hmm. deployed. So you know we do three months. So about 110 days we'd be, um, deployed. And that was just a, it was 24 seven while you were deployed until you got back. So, you know, it's funny. I always tell my wife, like, I can't wait to hear my first name again, because I was always Mr. Rennie or Lieutenant Rennie. And, uh, <laughs> until I got home and I was John again. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So what are the, what are some of the other systems of the sub that you had to be become proficient with? So we got the the nuclear reactor underneath the ocean, and there's <laughs> obviously like tons of like we talked about the the waste flush di- disposal, right? So but I don't know if you became you probably had to become proficient in that, you know, because you could know if the valve was turned the right way. So yeah, what are yeah. some of the other aspects of a sub that um, that, a, that a submariner needs to know about? Yeah, I talked about it in the book is, and, and I don't know, you know, I'm careful with what I say. Sure about um nuclear weapons because kind of important. you know we always were told that we could neither confirm nor deny we had nuclear weapons but you know uh, you can go on wikipedia and see that that tennessee had nuclear weapons so right. uh, so but uh, so whatever whatever i put in the book I, I always made sure that it was available you know you can find it on the internet so i didn't i didn't i didn't reveal anything in the book that uh, would uh, be confidential but one of the stories i tell is I was the missile officer for my last two deployments. So I was in charge of the nuclear weapons on board, the 24 nuclear weapons. Those are my responsibility. Wow. And so one of the things I had to do as far as being responsible for them was I had to do um, basically an inspection of the missiles before we deployed. And the inspection of the missile was was rather unique in that we opened a hatch to uh, to the missile compartment and then we actually opened up a hatch on the missile and I climbed inside the missile and did an inspection on all the wiring to make sure that I had a very strict procedure I had to follow sure? to make sure everything, all so. the connections were appropriate and what have you. But, you know, I just remember 
you know, I write about in the book, just remember laying on my back, looking up and realizing that above my head was, you know, something very, really significant, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we've all heard of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and, and I know. I've been there. Yeah. Oh, you have? Well, I've been to Hiroshima, probably. yeah. But the explosive power that was above my head was, was you know, several times greater than that. And yeah. uh, it's a little bit intimidating. But again, that's what we were, we trained, we, you know, we, 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 we knew what we were doing, even though we were young and um, in very interesting, like, you know, ever since I left the Navy, I've never had my head in a nuclear weapon. You know? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> it's, you know, I, but, but there I just did it all the time and it was no big deal. It's just, sure. you, were, you were used to it. So, but yeah, so I had to know, you know, everything about the, the nuclear weapons and how to deploy them and all the security around them and all the, uh, the systems around them and how they operated. And, and, you know, during my time, I got a chance to fire four uh, missiles without warheads, I should tell you. Um, Thank you for was, clarifying that. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty awesome because yeah. essentially uh, uh, these are these are missiles that go into space. They actually, um, you know, these these go from a very, very long range and they sort of, yeah. they go out in space and then they come back down again. So essentially you're launching rockets. So yeah. when I talk like NASA rockets from a submarine and having a chance to do four of them was pretty wild. So that was a pretty wild experience. So, so ICBMs, right? Intercontinental. Is that, is yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So you actually got, went, you go to surface <laughs> and then, mm -hmm. and then you open the, the hatch and a missile blasts out into space. No, more, more than that. We actually do it submerged. It's wild. Whoa. Yeah. So you so, say, yeah, you, so call, you call the Russians up like, hey guys, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you do it submerged. It's pretty wild. You actually, um, the, 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 you open the, you open the two, uh, the door, the missile door. We have this thing called a gas generator underneath it and it fires off. It's actually a mini rocket motor. It fires up and creates steam inside the, inside the uh, missile tube and it forces the missile to the surface so it so we mm. force it to the surface as we're submerged and then once the missile breaches the surface then it's 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 independent rockets take off so it'll light the rockets and then it'll just kind of go off on its own but imagine this so we are that close to a you know a rocket going off when yeah. that thing when that when those uh, primary motors kick in on the missile is really loud. It comes all the way through the water and then into the submarine. You can hear that Whoa. thing. Uh, you know, so anyone's gone to see, like I gone to see a NASA launch and like, you know, you're miles away. We were, you know, hundreds of feet away when that thing lit off. It was pretty wild. So that was kind of a cool experience. You got to do this four times. I do it four times. Yeah. Yeah. Over wild. the course of a career or is it one particular deployment? No, where you one, to one, one, um, one, one patrol we did, uh, we were, we were required to do uh, four missile shots, so. mm -hmm. and yet you did you you did call the Russians first. Like, don't worry, the Tennessee is not uh, is not having a big day. I don't know. Who, I hope somebody did. I don't, I I don't know. So. I, I, I was I was more worried about the logistics of launching the missiles at the time. I, I assume right. someone above me knew what was going on. So, not my pay grade. <laughs> well, it's funny because we actually you, you, the way this thing works is they give you an order to come in and. Um, and and then you come into uh, the um, the refit facility, and then and then and they tell you they come in and they take four tubes, they open them up, and they remove the warheads. You don't you're not even involved. So a team yeah. comes in and remove the warheads. Okay. And uh, and then they shut the tubes, and you go back out to sea. So you don't really get any a chance to really uh, relax. You go out to sea again, 
and then you launch those four missiles. Mm-hmm. My thought was like, I hope they got the right four, you know? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope they got the right four. I mean, you know? Yeah, the things that go through your head, like make make sure. <laughs> was it two or was it four? I can't remember. <laughs> Someone write this down. <laughs> yeah, so, but no, we had everything locked out. It was very safe, sure. but, um, but still it was pretty wild that they would just do that. So they would just randomly call you in remove your warheads and send you back out to sea to do a launch. So it was pretty wild. Yeah. And then that, it's, I mean, the, the, the exercise is a simulation, but the, but the rockets are real, but you know, yeah, 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 they're very real. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was pretty wild. So yeah. I mean, glad we never had to fire one of those in anger. That's for sure. That's because yeah. you know, it's the end of the world when that happens. So yeah, you know, that's, that's uh that's a the ball starts rolling downhill in a, in not in a, in a way that we don't actually want it to. Yeah, right. Well, you actually you also talk about um, the hunt for another had a hunt for a cover crimson, crimson, crimson tide. Yeah, yeah. And, and and you know that's a great movie by the way. That's like one of those movies. It's like what would you do in those situations? But that's not exactly you said in the book. That's not exactly how it would go down. Right. Thank God for that. Yeah. 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 So so there there are actual protocols in place. It's like if you don't know what to do, don't end the world. Probably. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it was, yeah, the 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 process, you know, the, they they create this false narrative on a, or a false story, you know, that's that's diff, that like there's two right answers, you know, and the yeah. way the movie is is per- perpetrated, but in reality, there's one right answer in that scenario, and uh, everybody knows what it is, but I won't reveal it. But right, yeah, no, we, no, <laughs> but no. there is there is a right answer. There that there there would not be conflict in the real in, in a situation you know, in that exact scenario. So, uh, but, but I think it was, you know, it's an interesting movie. Um, there's, there's some things about it that I liked. I talk about it in the book that like you get to see the interaction between the officers and the enlisted. And, uh, one of the things that they, they demonstrate really well in that movie is verbatim repeat back where, mm-hmm. which is a weird way that we talk on a submarine. So, you know, you might say, uh, you know, left full rudder, steady course 270. And the helmsman says, left full rudder, steady course 270, aye, sir. And it's just this weird back and forth language that we used on the submarine. And uh, but that was really important to make sure that your your orders were clear, they were understood, and they were being executed in the proper way. Again, because we had so, so much firepower on board and so much, you know, so much of the taxpayer dollars at risk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I have a lot of friends who um, who were in the military, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and one of the things one of the things they talk about is, um, you know, if, if I spend enough time with them, as they say, they don't want to be in war, but they kind of miss being the brotherhood of, of being in war, especially going yeah. out. So, do you ever look back on that time in your life, which I know is is yeah. a couple decades in the rear view, and, and kind of miss it a little bit? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I think that's the hardest thing for us. Um, you know, when you get out of the military, is the brotherhood is gone. You know, it's yeah. a it's a special bond. Uh, we had a special, it's funny. We would, we would deploy for three months. Right. And then we, we'd get together, like we'd get back into port and like we get together, husbands and wives would all get together, have a party or something like that. And then I noticed that all the guys were hanging out, you know, out on the back deck and all the women were in the kitchen. It's like, yeah. wait a second. We, we were just doing this for three months. We should have our spouses with us right now, but it was this brotherhood, this, this bond. And we, we knew how each other, you know, we we knew how, how we knew so much about each other because we spent so much time uh, deployed that we 
you know, it, we were brothers. I mean, we, I knew, I knew, I knew everything about them. They knew everything about me. Um, there was this deep bond that we had. Uh, we, we had each other's back. And I think when you leave the military, that is the hardest thing that to deal with. I, I, you know, I, luckily I have now I'm part of some groups where I have men around me and, you know, I have that bond again, but that's a hard thing. Um, I think many veterans have a hard time dealing with that when they get out. It's, uh, it's just missing. I, I tried to find it in corporate. I was trying to get people to get, Hey, let's go do things. Let's go. And people are like, Oh, I got a family. I got kids. I got, sure. you know, I've got, I got commitments. I got a mortgage. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And it was just, uh, it was weird to, to, and, and um, took me a while to find, you know, the right group of friends again. And where I have that brotherhood, and that bond. So, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the men's groups that you're, that you're a part of and where you find that in? Yeah, so I'm I'm a part of uh, you know Zach Small and the yeah. FOE, so I've been part of that for for a long time now. It's just a group, good group of guys that, uh, yeah, we're we're all kind of leaders, entrepreneurs. Um, we're you know people doing some cool things in, in the world, and we we sort of all connect through there, and we um, yeah, and we hold each other accountable to to being excellent, you know, in what, in what we do. So whether it's, you know, spiritually, physically, uh, mentally, financially, um, yeah, we're there for each other. And I think, you know, Zach's former Navy guy. So I think yep. he felt the same way when he got out of the military, which was, it was missing that brotherhood. So, so for, for the, for me, the FOE has been great for that. Um, I also have active in my church and active in the men's group at church and, and that's been good for me as well. So, but, but yeah, FOE has been real good for, for me. I mean, we just, you know, we have meetups and we get together and we, you know, just have, it's a brotherhood again. You know, we, we smoke cigars and talk about life and, you know, and, uh, but we also, you know, you know, we talk, you know, we talk shit, we talk about our families. We try to, you know, it's just that bond again that I, that, uh, I didn't have when I was in the military or, you know, after I got in the military. So it's been nice. Yeah. It's one of the things that I think men miss when they get out of the military, they get out of that bonding experience. It's like, where does, where does masculine brotherhood exist yeah. in yeah. the same way, in a way where it's like, we all rely on each other and we depend on each other. Um, maybe it's not quite the same level of mission, but I think men really need that. And men tend to get isolated at a certain stage in their lives. Yeah, you know, They, they yeah. get in the kids, mortgage, house, family, job, and that's it. And they yeah. don't, they kind of write, begin to kind of write off a little bit the things that they took for granted when they were younger but they need it far more than they're willing to admit to themselves in many cases. Yeah. Men need other men. It's a really important thing. I think that, uh, you know, and, and again, I think our society doesn't want, want that. I think that we right. don't, we don't want men to be men, but men need to be men. Yeah. And when, when men are being men, women can be women. And, and I think we, we all, we all naturally fit in those roles. You know, it's like we, what ends up happening is we end up in, in each other's roles, you know, women, <clears throat> You know, yeah. a, lot, a lot of women don't want to work, but they do because they're, they're sort of society says they got to work, right? Yeah. Uh, fortunately, my wife, she was able to stay home while my bo- yeah, when my two boys were born. She she raised my boys. Um, she stayed home. I worked, and um, I could tell you, my kids are, you know, incredibly. Uh, they they're they are they they benefited incredibly by having my wife at home. Uh, yeah. Her being, she was a teacher, and her being a teacher, um, just being there with them through their whole life, I think that they they have an advantage over other other young men because just because my wife was there for them, she has that very natural nurturing kind of uh, relationship with my boys. Where I was the grab them, you know, give them a noogie, and let's go out right. and do something. So we were, we we had a different. 
both both us as parents, we 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 added something different to our children, you know, by my my masculinity, her femininity, and I think that's what I think. I think human beings need that. I mean, I'm yeah. sorry, I mean, that's kind of anti-society now, but um, so but I think I think we need I think we need that. Uh, you know, we from for example, I'm, I'm a leader. I write about leadership books, but I learned about empathy through my mom. Right. Mm -hmm. But I learned about hard work and perseverance through my father, you know, and both of those are important to be a leader. Yeah. You know? And so you you can't be all one or all the other. You know, you have to have that. You have to have those skills in both areas. So I think that having having a mom and dad and having them there, um, having two parents is a huge advantage for, you know, raising children these days, I think. Were you you were married to your wife when you were on the subs too, right? Like she would have yes. to say bye for like three months. Was it three months at a time deployments? Yeah, months. yeah, yeah. So did and you had kids during that time as well, or or no? The, yeah. We waited. We it was one of the reasons I got out was that I saw too many of my, um, you know, my buddies uh, have their kids while they were deployed, or yeah. they missed the first birthday or missed the first step, so they missed all this, and 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 I just said no. Nah. I said you know if we're gonna have kids, I need to get out, and you know so we. We were married seven years before we had children. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And there was a there was a moving scene in your book with uh, General Colin Powell that I that I remember. Yeah. I, don't if, I don't know if you want to talk about that, if you want to save it for readers, if you want to hint that I'm I'm open because I I remember reading that scene as, and and um you know Colin Powell was I don't want to say he was part of my childhood, but he was on TV during yeah. my childhood. Let's say yeah. so. Yeah. So he there was a particular aura around him at the time, especially. So I don't know if you want to share that story or talk a little bit about it because. It sort of put the capstone a lot of time in your Navy, I think, a lot of your time really, in the Navy. It really did. And, you know, it's funny because I don't know, you know, I didn't realize the historic moment of that yeah. event until like later on in life. You know, I was just, it was like a normal thing. So our, our the USS Tennessee had the opportunity to, to actually de deploy on the 3000th strategic deterrent patrol. It's hard to say, but so mm. in other words, there were, th there'd been 3000 patrols. We were the, 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 the 3000th uh, patrol that made, that did a did a strategic deployment against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So that's how many patrols. That's how many guys like me had gone out to sea for three months at a time, guarding you know guarding the oceans, pointing you know uh, pointing the missiles at the Soviet Union and protecting us through strategic deterrence. Right? We just happened to be the one the one boat and the one crew that did the three thousand. Wow! Well, and so as it turns out, <clears throat> so we get back and there's like going to be a huge ceremony. And everyone from the chain of command, from my captain to Colin Powell, uh, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was going to be there. And, uh, and it, you know, there was it's a big deal. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't realize that how important it was. I was thinking, oh, okay, well, we just made the 3,000 patrol, so there's going to be a big celebration. Well, as it turned out, what I didn't know at the time was that the Cold War was over. This, this was the end of the Cold War. This was the first major celebration that the military had um, to, to celebrate the end of the cold war. So everything had come to an end. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the Soviets were, were, you know, kind of dismantling the Soviet government. And this was a celebration of that. And Colin Powell, he, he was just, a, he was an amazing, amazing speech. Cause you know, we thought, well, what does this army officer know about submarines? But he, he, mm -hmm. he really knew, and he really spoke, spoke about, um, the role that we played in the cold war and, and the importance, the important role we played. And, uh, it was, it was very powerful. So it was kind of a wild to be, you know, be in that, be there during this piece of history, you know, the end of the cold war, kind of celebrating the first celebration of the end of the cold war. And I was there standing on the, 
standing on the deck of the submarine while Colin Powell was talking and it was pretty wild. So yeah, it was a pretty cool moment. Uh, he's always been someone that I respect and I, I got his quotes all throughout my books because it's just someone mm-hmm. that I really appreciate. I respected. And um, yeah. And he, and just to be the, in that, in that moment with him, you know, celebrating the end of something that had been going on for going on for 50 years, is pretty wild. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, that's one of the great things about the book is, is you bring, I was not in the military. I never served in the military anywhere near a submarine, but I felt that in reading it, I got a sense of, of uh, the sense of camaraderie, brotherhood, ceremony, honor that's really yeah. involved in it. And, yeah. and also, and also the way that it affects and changes a man completely independently of how it then plays out again in his, in his professional and say corporate life. You, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it really brought me, I guess, into the boat uh, in, in a way with you, which was, um, which I was really, really grateful for because it was so, so far removed from my own experience. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, it's real. I'm so glad to hear that. I really worked hard to try to put people on board. You know, what was I seeing? What was I smelling? How was I feeling yeah. in these various moments? And I tried to do the best I could. And it's funny because I got out of the Navy in 1994. So it's been many years since mm-hmm. I've been on a submarine. But I can tell you, um, uh, you know, there's certain things like, for example, if I if a, if a, ve- a diesel vehicle goes by, I smell diesel exhaust. I'm I'm back on the ship. I'm yeah. my, I'm I'm physically back on the boat. I'm like, how did that happen? I mean, it's just that because you know, you we spent you know, you know, I spent two years of my life under the ocean. It it deeply affected me. So you know, uh, these even though it's been a long time, I can tell these stories because they're just they're in my soul. You know, they're they're just embedded in me because I just remembered the feelings I had at that moment in the you know, the stress I had and the struggle I had. And uh, so, yeah, I'm really glad to hear that because I, I was trying to tell it so that people get a chance to, you know, people that never been on a submarine can actually get on board and see what it, what it felt like to, to be given these responsibilities at a young age. Yeah, you can, you can feel how how formative it is, you know, at that at a age in the early twenties, early to mid twenties, when you know, open to so much experience as we all are at that stage, and what influences are we under, and how does it how does it shape us? And and you happen to be on board a nuclear submarine in the middle of the, in the middle of the ocean, and, and you really communicated that so clearly, which is one of the big reasons why I enjoyed the book because it gave me the gift of that experience of a place that I have never been to, will never be able to go to, but I felt like, and I've, I've enjoyed watching in movies like Hunt for October and Crimson Tide, et cetera. And that's one way of experiencing it. But I know in the back of my mind that that's fiction and it's hard to separate what in this is real and what is not real. It's clear that some things are real. I, I loved reading Tom Clancy books growing up and and I always knew that some of this is real, which is why it feels the way that it does. And some of it is obviously not. And but never really knowing, but I know in your experience, what you're writing about, oh, here are the things that are real, and I got the I got the gift of that as as a reader, um, which I didn't I didn't expect, which I really didn't expect in coming to the book, and I walked yeah. away with something. Oh, that's good, that's good. Yeah, no, I I you know it's funny because uh, you know uh, there were some things that like I don't typically swear too much. I keep you know in, mo- in my first book, I there was no curse words in there and. And I, this is supposed to be generally a book for everybody. So sure. it's not, you know, it's not just meant for adults, but I want everyone to read it. But there's just some things you can't communicate in stories without <laughs> using the real words that, that happen. That's right. There's no way to translate it. You know, um, you know, I tell the one story that, um, you know, one of the things that you'll ever, whenever, you know, when talking about test depth is that um, your, your experience in, in the Navy is always expressed as 
uh, the amount of time you spend on the shitter at test depth. <laughs> so it's just a weird express, expression. So, you know, you hear an old chief say, I spend more time on the shitter at test depth than you've been in the Navy, son. I mean, it's just a typical expression. And it's like, I can't change what that is. That's just the expression. That's the way life was, you know, that's so, you know, I tried to keep it as authentic as I could. I did, I did leave out, um, you know, there's been, there was a lot of cursing up where I left a, a lot of the stories, but curse <laughs> like a sailor is a thing. That's it is a, truly a thing. Yeah. The F word is, um, it's a noun, an adverb, an adjective. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's name of your buddy. It's everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have, I mean, you, you, you have to do that, but at the same, at the same time, like that's kind of what the men and, and, and presumably the women in the leadership positions that probably most of the men are really looking for when they're, when they're going to pick up the book is like, how, how can I see myself reflected in this experience and then bring it into, into my life. And in order to do that, you have to say it like it is. So yeah, few yeah. are willing to say it like it is these days. Well, we're fortunate to know a few of them, but. <laughs> so yeah, we had some fun with it, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I think, Again, um, you know, you're trying to, you know, it's interesting. I'll tell you, well, I didn't really realize I had any special uh, experience in my life until later on in life. I, I did my time in the Navy and I mm-hmm. left and I went into corporate. I, I just, if to me, it was like, oh, it's something I did. You know, it was no big deal. <laughs> uh, I served right. my country like like my grandfather's before me. Um, and now I'm working, you know, in, in a corporate job. But the 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 older I I got, the more I realized I did something really unique as a young person that really affected me in my entire life. And I, you know, I always go back to the principles I learned on the boat. And it's just really funny because again, as a young person, you're, you know, in my thirties, I didn't, you know, I was like, whatever. I, I wasn't the guy wearing the veteran ball cap. Right? right. I was like, that's in my past. I'm, I'm now moving forward with my life. But now that I'm a little older, and I can reflect back on like the successes I've had in the business world. I'm like, all those things were things that I learned in the Navy. I learned from my captain. I learned from uh, my peers. I learned from, you know, the officers I worked for. Um, I learned from those experiences of just, you know, hours, hours standing watch with my employees, getting to know them and getting them getting to know me. And so, yeah, so it did, it did affect who I was as a person. And I, I realized that later in life, uh, more than I did in my thirties and forties. So on your background, for those who are just listening to the audio podcast, it looks like you have a lot of Navy memorabilia. You've got some, some, uh, silhouettes of boats and some plaques and stuff like that. Yeah, it seems yeah. like it's something that you've probably incorporated more, more of your identity. I've seen a little bit of this in my dad as well. You know, yeah. when I, when I grew up, you know, my, again, my dad was a, a test pilot in the, in the air, in the air force, you know, yeah, he, yeah. he had crazy stories of flying his T-38 through the, through the Grand Canyon. And that's and, awesome. Yeah. You probably wouldn't do that today, but real <laughs> rock star kind of stuff, right. <laughs> Back in the day. And, um, and one of the things, but, but growing up, there wasn't really a whole lot of influence, air force influence. Like I would go into his yeah, office yeah. and, you know, and he had one of the flight sticks from one of his, one of his, um, one of his jets mounted in like a, an acrylic cube and some yeah. photos of him up, up, up on the wall. But as you know, as, as we both gotten older, I've seen more of that come out and more him beginning to appreciate the uniqueness, that uniqueness of that experience. I have a photo of me flying in a biplane that I took. Cause I've done some travel photography over, oh, wow. in, over New Zealand. And he had that printed out and framed and hung on his wall. And he's sort of beginning to incorporate more of that into himself now. And it's kind of nice to see because I never really got to know that side of my dad, Yeah, and, but he's yeah. surfacing it now. So maybe that's something that's kind of happens as he realized I've lived this I, I think it is. I honestly, yeah 
certainly do. I think it is. I, I know my grandfathers were that way too. They talked a lot more of it, uh, especially when I when I made the decision to join the military. Uh, both my grandfathers really told me stories. They they really opened up to me about their 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 true experiences. You know, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, you get the sort of the the G rated story, and but I got the the R rated stories as as I got you know, once I was in the military. My grandfather's really opened up to me, and and I heard I heard some real stories about some of their experiences, and uh, and yeah, so I think it's just, I think it's just normal that you sort of put that in the, you know, you say, well, you know, we're, we're men, we're really good at that. We can compartmentalize things really well, you know. And so to me, it was like, eh, that's in a box. I did that, whatever. Now I, I'm I'm trying to be the best boss I can be in in corporate world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that you know, it's like, it's part of your DNA. You can, you can put it in a box, but it's part of who you are. And I've learned that more now, uh, the older I get, that is, is part of who I am. And, you know, it's funny cause I wrote the first book, I have the watch yeah. and, um, <laughs> I worked with a, a, a coach, a writing coach to help me write the book and a wonderful guy. And, um, he, uh, so, you know, it's a leadership book, but he's like, mm-hmm. he goes, he goes, you're going to put a submarine on the cover. I go, nope. That's a leadership book. It's not a submarine book. He's like, he goes, if you don't put a submarine in that book, I'm going to be mad at you. I'm like, why? It's like, because you did something really unique. You're a, you're a former submariner who's led businesses. Uh, you, you have a very unique uh, perspective on life. I'm like, eh, yeah, but it's, isn't it kind of cheesy? You know, oh, he puts a submarine on the cover, you know, because he's a former submarine guy. And, uh, but I'm glad I did. So, so you know, for me, it's like eh, I, don't, I don't really want to brag about it. It's just it's something I did. But I'm, um, but I'm glad I did. In the second book, there should be a submarine. It's a submarine book. It's, it's. Yeah. Uh, but, but the first book, there's, there's a few submarine stories, but nothing like the second book. So, so, but uh, my, my writing coach was like, you better put a submarine on the cover. And so I'm like, all right, there it is. <laughs> so see, some of the some of the criticism of the first book, they're like, not enough submarine stories. I'm like, yeah, well, wait a second, the, the second book's coming. So. <laughs> So let's let's talk about your books then, because I, I did yeah. have not read. I have the watch, and I'll, and I'll tell you just from just from a consumer perspective, because I went in cold. You know, like we like yeah, I said, yeah. we just connected on Twitter, and I didn't yeah, yeah. I didn't know that you were connected to Zach Small or anything. We just started chatting, and it was it was a submarine that hooked me because you know I, I <laughs> the second book in particular because I felt that well this is really interesting. This this man comes from a, a world that I have no familiarity with. And yeah. that lends a specific kind of credibility. And if I get nothing else out of reading the book, at least I got some cool sub stories. You know what I mean? Yeah, Which is, yeah. No yes. way. But there's no way that you would think that because your experience, we don't take ourselves for granted, but we kind of do. We do. Um, yeah. 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 But I mean, you you also, what's the alternative? Like you get off the you get off the boat and you walk around for 20 years of your life. I was on a submarine. And then the world's like, we don't care. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah. I ran a marathon. I'm a vegan. Right. Yeah. We don't care. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think that's part of it is like, how do we incorporate these formative experiences into our personality? You know, yeah. I, I was, I've, I've traveled around the world, for example, but I don't walk around with like a camera around my neck or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. How do I, how do I weave this into who I am? Because I do get to own it, but I don't want to, I don't want to wear it. What's that? Yeah. Balance? yeah. I think it's, um, um, you know, uh, I think, yeah, the concept that I talk about it in the book is skill stacks. You know, it's these are these are skills stacks that you have that make you uniquely you. You know, and that's it's something I appreciate now as I'm older, is that um, you know each of us we're, we're nothing like anybody else. We have so many different you know skills and experiences that we stack on that make us unique and make us valuable. 
And um, and my stack is different than your stack. It's different than Zach's stack. It's different yeah. than my son's stacks. You know, and I think that you know it's just it's who we are. It's how we build our ourselves as a person. And they're they're always a part of us. And I think we you know we need to recognize that there's certain things in that that I learned from those experiences. And and I think the the nice thing when you're an author and you're writing is that you, you're trying to give a unique perspective, you know, like there's been 15, I have to confess, there's been 15,000 books written on, for, on leadership. So I'm just mm-hmm. noise. Right. But, but what's unique about mm-hmm. my story? Well, my story is, is kind of a unique uh, early, I, my, my, I had a unique experience early on that really affected how I led uh, in later in life. And I think that's my unique skill stack and my unique story. And I think everybody has that story. You know, um, I was talking with a friend of mine that's thinking about writing a book and, you know, he has, he grew up, um, his dad um, was a farmer, dirt poor, grew up in Pennsylvania. They, mm-hmm. he bought an old farmhouse and restored it while they were li- still living in it. And, wow. uh, and uh, just this really unique and, and uh, kind of wild child upbringing that he had. And then he ended up, you know, getting into, he's in the steel industry and ended up going all the way to the top to rerun steel mills now. And, but, but that experience that he had, you know, being dirt poor, uh, but playing outside and just all of his, his experiences, you know, hunting and hiking and, and just all this great stuff had just created this, this really successful individual that can do difficult things that, that has just thrived in leadership. I'm like, you've got a story there. You have a really unique uh, skill stack and how you ended up getting to where you ended up. And I think each of us has that. And, uh, and each of us has a story to tell, you know, and I think that, um, you know, if, if anyone's listening in, they're like, Oh, I want to think about writing a book one day. It's like, well, okay, what's your unique, what's your unique, you know, experiences and what, how have those experiences, you know, impacted the things that you've been able to do in your life. And I think that if you can pull that together, that's, that's fun. You know, it's fun to do as an author and it's fun to read when people do that well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's the skill stack that you brought from your time in the submarines that gives you a unique perspective on leadership, like the no escape mentality. Like, (laughs) yeah, there's, there's no way that a guy is just going to, well, there are very few circumstances where a guy is going to have that attitude going into the corporate world being like, no, there's no escape. Like you, there's, there's one, there's one objective period that where, where are people going to develop that? If not in the military, if not in a boat under the water. And, and, but that's a really important kind of mental attitude that team teams of people, teams of men have to have, um, and, and that there's one goal and one objective and, and that's it. But yeah. people don't learn that because they're because in the in the regular civilian world, if you decide that if you want to uh, say abandon whatever your goal is halfway through, you can you can do that. Well, you don't Correct. have to do that in a submarine. You, you know, don't. it's like yeah. it's forty billion dollars and one hundred and fifty lives and 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 some and some expensive weaponry as well. Like <laughs> that's a but that's that makes it worth listening to, right? That's that's yeah. what makes yeah. that that's what gives you your perspective. Yeah, yeah, it's unique for sure. <laughs> So let's talk. Well, actually, I want to, if you don't mind, I want to ask about the process of like, okay, so you you were on a submarine and you were an entrepreneur, but then you you wrote some books. I mean, you had a, a yeah. writing coach. So what an interesting kind of transition that maybe I don't know if you saw that coming. Well, um, yeah. So no, I didn't see it coming. I, I, again, probably about uh, ten years ago, I started writing articles. Uh, you know, I started. I was blogging about leadership things. I was writing for several websites, um, and. Uh, yeah, I was just 
Well, one of the things I realized, you know, I spent a lot of time in corporate and I didn't care about the outside world. I cared about being successful inside my companies. And um, I left one big company and went to another big company. And I realized uh, when I left, when I transitioned from one large company to another, I realized that I was a nobody outside of the corporate world, that nobody knew who I was. I didn't have a personal brand. Um, You know, I had a LinkedIn, you know, resume out there like most people did. But as far as like a presence in social media, I mean, I, I had been writing articles, but nobody really knew who I was. But um, so after I made that transition to that second or to that last uh, com- uh, corporate job I had, I really said, you know, what? I got to really develop my personal brand and, and who I am and started. So I started writing a lot more frequently. I, I wrote a lot more articles um, and I really, you know, built a website and I started, you know, putting stuff content out there. Uh, and, um, I really started having fun with it and the mm. interaction I was getting and, and, you know, I had one article, uh, actually the article that was the, the, uh, the Genesis for this, for the, for, uh, all in the same boat was, I wrote one article about like the 10 lessons I learned, you know, living and leading on a nuclear submarine. And it just, it went global. I mean, I yeah. had no idea, like one article I wrote and, uh, and it just went all over the world. I mean, cool. Uh, and I was like, Oh, this was, why is this so unique? So like I've been writing artists for a long time, but that one just hit on a, on a, on a major way. And I'm like, I'd read that. Yeah. So I'm like, wait a second. Well, maybe that's, maybe there's something in, in that, you know, we're talking skill stack that, that, that people might be interested in reading. And so I set my sights on writing the second book first. I actually started writing the second book first. And in the process of writing the second book, I, I said, you know, what? I need to get a higher coach. I hired a writing coach and, um, <clears throat> And he's the one that said, wow, this is a great book. This is going to be awesome. He said, he goes, let's write a first, let's write another book first. I'm like, what? Oh, oh interesting. <laughs> I was like, what? He goes, what no. he says, you have a, you have a killer book here. He said, but you also have written, you know, thousands of pages of stuff through your blogs, uh, in your articles that, that you have all this other content and you, you're a no name right now in the, in the writing industry. Let, let's let's write a first book first and let's bring some of the ideas that you have uh, from some of your other articles that you've written. And, uh, and that's what we did. So we wrote, the first book was, was, uh, was, a, it was a trial. It was just like, okay, how do I write a book? Learn. It was old dog, new trick, right? Okay. How do you, how do you write and publish a book? And, and so I went through the whole process. I met with all these other authors. I, I was a lot of military uh, veteran authors. I met with a lot of them. Like, what did you do? How, what was your experience like? Uh, what worked? What didn't work? And so I tried to learn as much as I could for as many people as I could. And then I, had, you know, again, I had a coach, and um, you know, I released this book thinking that this was just to just get my name out there. I didn't expect that to take off, but I'm going to write, you know, and I'm going to, but I wanted to, I wanted to grease the skids for the second book, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first book just took off and it went crazy. Wow. And the demand for it uh, still, even today is, 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 I can't believe it. And the, and the, the, the doors that it opened, the, the different chances I've had to speak to people and, and to present the ideas from that book. And, you know, I mean, strange things like I got a call from the FBI saying uh, and that was a strange call, yeah. um, but it was the, the, the lady that runs the training center at the FBI. And they wanted to let me know that, uh, they had a copy of my book in the library in, in Washington in, in, the F, in the FBI, and they loved it. And we were, we were originally going to have me come out there and talk to the FBI before uh, COVID hit. Mm. But, um, but it's like – and then this was wild. I had the executive officer of the USS Tennessee 
current, I mean, that was one boat I was on, wow. called me up and say, um, I, he wanted my permission to be able to use my book to, for training officers on the current officers on the USS Tennessee. And I'm like, you don't need my permission. I'm <laughs> super excited. <laughs> you, know, like, you don't need my permission. <laughs> yeah. so, but, That's amazing. But, yeah. So what I learned through the process, I met so many cool people. I got a chance to speak on the, on the subject of leadership. Uh, it, it elevated who I was, my brand, all that sort of thing. But, but it just, it took off like a, something I couldn't believe. And, and to the point where it took me a while to get the second book out because I was like dealing with the, the first book and, and, and all the, you know, all, all the requests to come and talk to people about it. So uh, yeah, so the second book took me a little longer to get out, and finally did, and, and it's been the, the second book was just that's the book I wanted to write, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm really excited about that one uh, because it really tells the story that I had in my mind when I started writing in the first place. And uh, you know, it, th- those people are listening in and thinking about writing a book, you know, consider doing a a smaller book first, a, a test book, uh, because I think you know you learn from the process. You just like anything else, you get better over time. And, and my second book was a lot easier to do than my first book. And, and, um, I, I've got a third book that's coming out, um, that's in pre-order right now. And so it'll be coming out next month. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the third one gets, it's even easier. So, and I don't have an idea for a fourth book yet. So <laughs> <laughs> I got to think about it. So. It's like a trilogy. Well, what are the, what are the three books about? So compare them all. So what's book one, book two, and book three, like how do they all fit together? Yeah, so uh, I have to watch our. Uh, it's it's a um, it's a series of of short uh, essays about the. In um, the theme of that book is leadership as a people business. So what does it mean to 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 be an effective leader of people? So uh, and and what makes uh, what are the extras you can do to become an extraordinary leader? So it's it's mostly short short. Um, Short. There's like I think 28 chapters, and they're all relatively short, like four pages a piece. But each has a different lesson uh, that we talk about in terms of what, that 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 make you an extraordinary leader. And they're all filled with stories from my experiences, both Navy and in the civilian world. So it's it's more short essays on um, characteristics of a great leader, and with mm-hmm. the theme of leadership as a people business. So um, some people that have talked to, have read the book say it's like a it's, you know, something you can read a chapter every morning, you know, it's mm-hmm. like a morning, almost morning devotion, if you will, towards leadership. Uh, and um, so it's, it's easy to read. It's, uh, it's like 170 pages and, um, you know, people, people have really responded well to it. So, um, and then the second book, um, all in the same boat is more, uh, it's, it's a collection of stories from my Navy days and my, um, in my days in business uh, reflected on, um, you know, eight different themes that we have. And so, you know, I tell stories from, the, from both uh, my time in the Navy and then how I use those ideas in, in, in business, both in corporate and as an entrepreneur. So that's kind of fun. So there's, you know, each mm-hmm. chapter has a, a series of stories around a different theme. So um, it's kind of fun. So like one of the theme, one of the stories in the book is, you know, run to the fire. That's the, right. the, 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 the first one, right? Is run to the fire. What was yeah. that? Mean? Well, you know, I learned I was a firefighter on board the submarine because we all were, and we were taught to run towards the problems, not away from them. And that's a great analogy in business. You know, run towards your problems, don't run away from them. And um, so, again, tying this thing I learned in the military and how I brought it into business and, and how it was effective. So, so the second book is more 
you know, story based uh, around eight different themes. And then the new book is a guided journal for leaders. So it takes you, it's, it's, uh, it's meant to be on your desk for a year. So it's, uh, mm. there's 50 themes in the book and there's a different, different facet of each theme every day. And so, um, so we walk you through, uh, and so it's, it's meant to, you know, you, you, there'd be a theme for the week and it's meant to, you sit on your desk and you, you read that and it might be like the, the day might be, be present, you know, uh, and, and why it's important to be present at work. What does it mean to be present? And questions are, you know, how often do you get out of your office? You know, how, how often do you see your people, you know, for you to reflect on these different issues. So it's meant to be more of an interactive uh, session between me, the writer, and the, and the reader uh, through the process. So it's more of a, what I call a guided journal mm-hmm. uh, that's going to take people through. So I'm excited about that because <clears throat> readers in my first book said they were using it like a journal, almost like a, like I said, like a um you know, it's a reflection point. So this this one will take you through an entire year. It's fifty weeks. I figured you get two weeks vacation. You know, <laughs> right bonds. somewhere in there. So uh, and uh, so we have fifty themes in the book, and then we have got uh, uh, five uh, five facets of the, of each theme. So it's fun. It's gonna be a fun book. Um, we're doing pre orders right now, and um, and uh, so I'm excited about that one. I think it was, I don't remember who, but someone said there are no third acts in America, meaning that, you know, know, your first act and some men get a second act, but it sounds like, you know, you had your first act in the, in the submarine world and then you had your second act in the corporate world. And now you've kind of become a content creator, influencer, public speaker. Um, Yeah. Like probably no one is more surprised at that than you, because it doesn't seem like something that you're ever really aiming at, but like the first book blew up and it's like, oh, wow. Like, okay, sure. Why not? Yeah, you're you're entirely right. I never expected. I I, I tell you know people you know in, in the FOE world that are, are thinking about writing books. I, I help them, coach them, but you know I tell people I I, I I'm debt free, but I pay my mortgage. Uh, well, other than my mortgage, I pay my mortgage with book sales. I never would have imagined that. My wife is thinks wow. it's funny too. She's like, you need to write another book. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, uh, so she sees the value in it too. So it's not just me uh, sitting around in a corner banging out books for my own self interest. I mean, it actually. Um, what what do they say? Uh, you know, uh, you know, you have to have three things if you want to know what you're what you really should be doing in life. And, and, and one is, you know, uh, or, or to, to really truly test your passions. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, um, are you good at it so much so that that people recognize that you're good at it? Uh, mm-hmm. And number two, uh, you get paid uh, to do it. And three, that you enjoy doing it. Mm-hmm. If you can combine those three together, then you found a, a really strong passion for me. All those three, three things happen uh, for, for writing. And so I'm going to keep doing it. And um, so I enjoy it. Uh, I didn't realize I'd, I would have such so much success with it, but it's been fun. And I've met some amazing people along the way. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I sort of have like fans now too. Like, Oh, wow. Yeah, they reach out to me on social media. When's the next book coming out? I'm like, I don't know you, but that's cool that you want to know. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think about the number of people who've read my book, and it's like you know, it, it's it's like filling stadiums, and it's you're like, oh wow, wow. You know, when you think about the amount of people that you can influence through a writing, uh, and people I'll never meet, you know, that's that's the cool part. And I, I'll have people send me notes like, man, I really needed that chapter at this time in my life, and you're like. Wow, you know, you didn't, you don't, you don't realize the impact you have 
uh, on others when you write a book like that. So if those of you are thinking about writing a book, I mean, you know, I think I highly encourage it. I think it's, it's a cool process and, um, yeah, and I, I would highly recommend doing something small, starting with a smaller project first, just to learn the process. But uh, yeah, it's such a such a cool such a cool experience. And the other thing too, I did, um, you know, I was writing these articles all the time and create a lot of content. But I noticed people aren't reading anymore, so they they do less reading. So um, actually, you know, I started a podcast two years ago called mm-hmm. Deep Leadership, and um, that's been phenomenal. So I've switched from you know, just doing everything writing to doing this, you know, audio and um, video. And that's been a lot of fun. And that, that's been a cool experience. And, and um, I've, I've met some incredible people on my show through that. So that's another thing that, you know, just, I never thought I'd be, you know, running a podcast, you know, so so some people do this full time. I'm, I'm, I run a manufacturing business. This is just, this is like, this is like my part-time gig, you know? So <laughs> Yeah. I was going to ask, how do you, how do you put all I mean, I know the demands of content creation, like how do you put it all together with a manufacturing gig and you go home and you're, you're a famous author and a podcast host. <laughs> like it's, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of wild. Like I believe me, I know the feeling of, of, of having fans of having there are people out there that will be listening to this, that listen to all my podcasts that I'll never know. There's someone out yeah, there. That yeah, yeah. I love, I'll never meet them. I'll never, they'll, they'll never write to me, but you can write to me at info at renamend.com if you want and I'll get it. <laughs> But, you know, who, who engage with the things that I create and that makes a difference in people's lives. And it's just yeah. that connection there is there, but it, it's, there's something about it. It's, I can't quite put my, put my finger on it, but I know that you know what I mean. Yeah, it, it is. It is wild. And I love it when people reach out and, and interact with me and, and um, you know, I'm, and I've gotten opportunities to, to, to talk at different events and stuff. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun to talk up, to meet people and do those kind of cool things. So. Yeah, there's the amazing the doors that open up. Um, you know, my podcast. I recently had uh, Ken Blanchard, you know, the famous leadership author. He's written mm-hmm. sixty five books on leadership, <laughs> and I'm I'm on a I'm on 65. a pod, I'm on a podcast with one of my heroes, Ken Blanchard. Yeah. I've read you know, a lot of his books. Uh, yeah, I've used some of his techniques going through my cor- corporate career, and here I am, like, um, you know, having a conversation with Ken Blanchard. I'm like. Well, that's wild. Never thought that would ever happen. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's kind of cool that, um, uh, that, you know, these things are available to us. You know, it's never been easier to start a podcast. It's never been yeah. easier to write a book, but I would say the people that are successful with these things are the people that stick with it. So a lot of people start a podcast and they do three episodes and oh like, yeah, it's a lot of work. Won't do yeah. it, you know? So, uh, but I think if you stick with it long enough, we're now, I think our show is in the top 5%, uh, now um worldwide globally so wow uh, which is cool so we're, we're growing and we got picked up on a network uh, there's a, le- a network called electrocast and it's just a bunch of different podcasts so we're i'm part of a bigger group and we have a subset called the best business network so there's a bunch of business podcasts uh in this one network so it's kind of fun i get to meet other podcasters and we uh we you know we run ads together and share an ad revenue and it's it's cool so it's just different. So never expected that I would be part of a podcasting community, but I'm doing that too. So do you get recognized in public? You know, you've got, we, we, we were talking before we hit record about, you know, you're on TikTok now, which is, you know, leadership on leadership. TikTok is going to be I am a on thing. TikTok. John S. Rennie, follow me. No, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not that serious about TikTok, but um, <laughs> he's not doing dances either. He's walking, walking. No, I walk yeah. through my plant and I give, I basically do these plant walkthroughs and I just talk about something, some leadership issue, these little one minute uh, segments. But um, 
No, I don't think I get recognized too many, but sometimes I do. So some people, it was kind of funny, like, like I'll just run into someone and they'll say, oh yeah, uh, I, you know, I read your book and I'm like, oh wow. You know, like I'll meet somebody, yeah. like I'm having coffee with somebody and they're like, oh, I read your book. And I'm like, oh, you know, like that's kind of intimidating. Like yeah. she, they know more about me than I know of them, you know, yeah. I'm like, oh, well, what'd you think of it? You know? <laughs> so, so it's kind of a fun, it's kind of a neat thing. I know, but I'm not, not, I'm not famous. So I'm internet famous. That's not that famous. Well, I mean, still the things that, <laughs> the things that you've created have affected lives and affected careers and affected families. And it's a, it's a, it like, and to know that people to fill stadiums have listened to your, have, have read your book. I mean, that's a powerful feeling to, to envision that. Like there's a stadium yeah. full of people that have read the book. Like, wow. Yeah. That's, that's what, that's what gets me when I think about that. So yeah, that's, that's, what's really cool. So, uh, but yeah, uh, actually a good friend of mine, uh, John Brubecker wrote a book called stadium status and, uh, it's a cool book if you ever want to look it up, but it's talking about what it takes to go from basically playing in bars to playing in, in front of stadiums and it's a cool book, but uh, stadium status. And I think about that one, uh, when, when I think about the number of people who have, you know, read my book, it's like, Oh, I'm filling stadiums now. So, mm -hmm. but I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, famous. <laughs> so what's I'm the think of a famous person, but I'm, you'll find I have no pop culture references whatsoever. I'm really terrible at pop culture because I spend time creating, not consuming. So yeah, that's, that's yeah. on balance. That's probably for the best. Well, it what is, does, yeah. what is the, what is, what does the future of all this look like? Do you intend to continue in manufacturing? <laughs> you know, do you get an, will you ever get invited to go back on a submarine? Do you think like, will you move to like, what does it, what does it all look like for you? Well, that would be desperate. If the Navy called me up and needed me to go on a submarine. Well, just to would, hang out. Like, come and kick it with me on the submarine. You know, I read your, like, do you get to do that? I don't know. Do you get to do that at all? Yeah. No, I haven't, uh, I haven't been back on a submarine yet. So, uh, since I left. So, no, but I, I, um, I love what I do. I have, I'm an entrepreneur. I have a company called Peak Demand. We're a manufacturing company. I love what I'm doing there. But I definitely can see myself, um, the, the the problem with having a manufacturing business is that you cannot be a digital nomad. You pretty much are stuck uh, going into yeah. the office. I do interview people all the time on my podcast. Oh, I created this business and I've been traveling the world while I've been running this, this uh, remote business. I'm like, that sounds like fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a factory. I have, I have people there. I have, but um, I think at some point I can envision the point where um, where I move out of day-to-day -day operations in the business and let other people take over. And then I'd focus more on the writing and the speaking, uh, the teaching, um, uh, the consulting and on the leadership side, helping other business, helping other small business, um, you know, improve uh, based on my experiences. So, yeah, I definitely would like to do that. I'd like to be able to do something where I could travel and, um, mm -hmm. and you know, not be tied to the plant every day. I think that's something that uh, I really want to do. Uh, we got a trip planned for uh, Norway this, uh, this summer. So, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, for me, it's like, okay, well, we're going away for two weeks, but I really kind of have to get back because I'm still running the show. But eventually sure. I'd like to be able to just go for a month in some weird part of the world and just hang out. As long as I have internet access, I can create content and interact with, you know, people that way. So I th I'd like to do that. I, I, I it sounds very, I never thought that would be something I'd do in my life, but it sounds very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So as you, as you think back to, mm -hmm. uh, as you think back to that, that kid who's coming around the corner and seeing the <laughs> submarine up in the dry dock, right. With the sparks and the grinding noise and you reflect back on the, the length of that journey, uh, you know, however many, however many years it's been like, what do you, what do you got to say to that kid? And what, maybe what does he have to say to you? Yeah, I would say to that kid, you're going to be fine. You're going to, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not an imposter. You, you belong wow. there. 
you you've earned your spot. You've you know you're doing you're going to fulfill your dreams like you never you that that you'll never imagine. And then you know what? This is me talking to my young self. Mm-hmm. You're going to find another passion, and that's manufacturing. You didn't know you had that passion, but you're going to find that as well, and you're going to have a lot of fun with that. Uh, so don't worry that you run out when you leave the Navy, you're going to have another life as well. Cause I think that's something that, you know, I, I talk about it in one of my books. I don't know which I did where I talk about it, but I found my second passion in life, which was to help struggling manufacturing businesses. And that's something I really enjoyed doing as well. So, um, you know, what do they say? It's, uh, the two greatest days in your life is when you're born and then you realize why you were born. Well, mm-hmm. that happened to me twice in my life. I figured out my second passion in life, which was uh, to help struggling manufacturing businesses. And so I think I would tell my old, my, my younger self, you're going to be fine. You're going to do well. And you're going to f- figure out something else beyond the Navy and you're going to be really happy about it. Um, and then in my younger self, tell my older self, like, just, I don't know. <laughs> Just stay, stay hungry, stay, you know, keep working hard. Don't, uh, don't, you know, just don't lose that curiosity you had when you were younger, you know, just to to explore things and don't be afraid to explore things. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be a rookie, you know. Mm -hmm. Any plans to write a fiction book about your experiences? No, I don't think so. I, I do. I do. Um, this this one little silhouette on my wall for those who might be seeing is the USS Frost. It's the ship my grandfather served on. It's a silhouette of that ship, and he had a really interesting experience. I wrote a little bit about it in chapter eight of my latest book, and, and um, very interesting guy. I'd love to tell his story maybe someday in a fictional way um, because he was just an ordinary person put into extraordinary circumstances, and it affected who he was as a person in a very extraordinary way, and. And, uh, you know, but it's, I think they could be told in a way that it would kind of be fun to read. So I might, I might, I might think about that. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, I'm going to keep writing, uh, leadership books. Um, uh, I'd like to tell the story of my, my entrepreneurial journey at some point, mm-hmm. but I've got to get the ending right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stick the landing, right? <laughs> so the ending's not done yet. We're still working on the ending. So, yeah. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> and, 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 you know, that is one of the things about the book that does come across is it's not just all, um, uh, meaning all in the same boat. It's not just submarine stories. Like you do really ground yeah. it in the manufacturing world really clearly in a way mm-hmm. that, um, that comes across to me, like how you took those lessons forward in a way that's very relatable and, and is very leadership oriented. Like I can understand how men in leadership positions would read that book and be like, oh yes, okay. I see how I can apply that to my shop yeah. floor or my team. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the feedback I've gotten, which was that, you know, really, it's really relatable and that, you know, the, these lessons apply to just about anyone in any type of organization. And, you know, my experiences are the Navy and, and manufacturing businesses, but, you know, it translates what, that well to firehouses. I had a lot of firemen um, read the book, a lot of firehouses read the book, police outfits. Um, so it does relate to other, any type of organization as well. So just, you know, one, one last question really is, uh, you talk a little bit about your, your cartoon and drawing abilities in, in, in the book. I wonder if you have any examples to, to show that are just handy there at your desk. Cause I was, I was kind of curious, what is that? <laughs> Nothing around, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't uh, do so much of it anymore. I've got some oil paintings downstairs. I actually do oil paintings as well. That's pretty and, cool. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just don't do it as much. I enjoy it. Um, 
Uh, my grandfather, um, uh, my other grandfather was in the army. He was an oil painter and he taught me how to oil paint. So I used mm. to sit by him as he would, you know, we'd sit by the beach and he'd, you know, be painting a, a lighthouse. We'd be, you know, in Maine and he's painting a lighthouse and I would just sit there with my own easel and, you know, he would show me how to use the brushes and the can, you know, and the, and the oil paints and all that. So learn from my grandfather and, um, yeah, I was always the ship's cartoonist on board. I, I ran cartoon in my college newspaper and yeah, so just something I, I haven't really done. I don't do too much of it, but I'm a doodler. So my wife's a kindergarten teacher. I do all okay. the artwork for kindergarten. So I do all sorts. I did some frogs the other day she wanted me to draw. So I draw all sorts of stuff for kindergarten. That's all I do now. So I don't really mm. do. I don't use my art skills that much anymore. <laughs> the ship's cartoonist. That doesn't sound like, I don't know too many ships that have a ship's cartoonist. Maybe I, they do though. They do. If you, if you would search, uh, if you would just look even in World War II, there was always like a, somebody who, like an artist that would document the, their, you know, different deployments and different things they did. Uh, yeah, there's some pretty funny cartoonists that were in the Navy. There's a lot of, it's trench art, right? I mean, it's, um, yeah. you know, it's the things you do while you're stuck at sea for months at a time, you know? Um, I think I told the story of how I, you know, hand, hand, so I hand sewed a pirate's flag and flew mm -hmm. it on my last watch. Yep. Um, but yeah, that's, it was just total trench art. I've never sewed anything before, but I figured out how to, you know, I got all the material and I sewed a pirate's flag and I took the American flag down for my last watch and I flew a pirate's flag and, and it was sort of a salute to the, to the World War II uh, submariners that went before me as something that was a tradition they did. So, uh, but I felt just like, it was like a final salute, my last watch to the, to the, all the people that went before me. Yeah, it was a very moving story coming back into port on your last watch with a pirate flag flying on a submarine. Like, how awesome is that? How awesome is that? It was cool. It was very cool. Well, this has been fantastic, John. Thank you so much for sharing all of your wonderful stories about the book. And, uh, you know, again, I highly recommend that everyone pick up all in the same boat. I'm going to get Eye of the Watch. And I saw that the pre-orders for your new book are coming out. And that was really exciting. So um, I really appreciate you taking the time to to share so much of your life and experience with us. Yeah, thanks, Will. I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation and uh, kind of diving deep in some of these subjects. So to speak. So to speak. So uh, where can men go to find out more about you and what you do? Yeah, it's johnsrenny.com and all my links to everything is are, is right there on my website. And johnsrenny.com and you can spell John any way you want and you'll get there. <laughs> smart, smart. <laughs> all right, well, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate this. Thank you, Will. episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.